Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. This is episode number 100 of HI 101, a fact that I can still hardly believe. I wanted to do something special to mark the occasion, so we'll be answering some listener questions before talking about a man who, in my opinion, should be considered one of history's worst villains, Christopher Columbus. But before we get started, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who listens to the show, and especially to anyone who has ever shared the show with a friend. You're the reason for the success of this podcast, and I couldn't have done it without you. If you haven't looked yet, I'll warn you now that this episode is extremely long. Um, one more thing to set it apart from the usual. So if you're only here to learn about Columbus and don't want any of the Q&A, I would suggest you might want to skip to around the 65-minute mark or so. Without further ado, let's begin. Here on HI101 with Phil Downey. Hey. And Kevin Miller. Hello. And this is the 100th episode of this show, which is kind of bonkers. Yeah. I'm having a little bit of a hard time dealing with the triple digits. It's several years. It's been several years now, but here we are. So I thought we'd do something a little bit special. And as we've talked about uh, a couple of other times coming up to this, we're going to do a bit of a Q&A session first and mm -hmm. then... Uh, we're going to talk about Christopher Columbus. The long-awaited yeah. forbidden subject. Yeah. I can't believe this is actually finally happening. You're that excited? There have been so many like jokes about, oh, uh, when are we going to do Christopher Columbus? Mm -hmm. And a lot of conversations with other guests that, we, that I know and probably that uh, Miller knows as well. Mm -hmm. um, just like, oh, do you think he's ever going to do it? Like, what, what's it going to take to get him to do Columbus? Right. So I'm glad it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's start with the questions. We'll we'll build our way up to it. Um, yeah, I, I I got questions from a few different places. So uh, in the past, I kind of read out names. A couple of these are usernames because they were coming in off the internet. Of course. Uh, but we'll deal. Um, so first one, it's from uh, Big Dog Twenty Three Thirty. I was gonna make a joke like that. <laughs> What's up, Big Dog? I'm like Big Nate Four Twenty, right? <laughs> not not quite, but you know. It's uh, it's it's definitely not like Scott or something. Yeah, nothing but love, Big Dog Two Thirty or whatever. Uh, they ask, at what point do historians accept an event as historical fact? Does there need to be a certain amount of reliable sources before we can say something actually happened? Does the process look different, or does the criteria change when it's something that happened recently versus something that happened a long time ago? Example, Desert, desert Storm versus Persians conquering the Middle East. In other words, how is history made? So I thought I'd start off with a nice light one, just yeah. to ease, ease ourselves into yeah, it. Just cool. straightforward. I'll answer this yeah, one. Yeah, let me feel this one. <laughs> 
I think it's a really good question, though. I think it's something that more people should be aware of, like, what the process behind that is. Yeah, it's a process that I think more people should know what exactly is going on. So you'll hear me talk about, like, the 20-year rule every once in a while on this show, right? As a rule of thumb, don't come uh, more recent than 20 years ago. The problem with the 20-year rule is that that's literally, like, the bare minimum of what we want to try and maintain as a buffer between ourselves and history because anything nearer than that is almost certainly current events and we almost certainly don't have the entire story Mm -hmm. and that's what that buffer is for we don't want to be dealing with something um in historical context that is still having uh real world effects now and the obvious like extrapolation of that is lots of stuff more than 20 years ago are still having really immediate effects on our world today right and that causes all sorts of problems, like, for example, lots of parties having a very good reason to not necessarily want the entire story to come out or to have a very biased version of that story come out. Um, there's uh, I, I heard somebody say one time that anything since World War One is basically current events. And there's a pretty strong case to be made for that. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of an extreme version of it. Still happening. But like, yeah, it's not that extreme. Like a lot of it is. <laughs> it's really true. not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, not get too political, but look at the the current landscape and sure. Well, I mean, you can see the, the implications are pretty much a straight line. Yeah, that's that's the issue. Is it gets really political? I mean, um, you know, history isn't one static thing, and we really shouldn't be thinking of it that as, as such. Mm-hmm. What history is is like an ongoing interpretation of various types of evidence throughout, uh, or that we've gathered gathered over time about events and our modern day interpretation of those events. And what that means is we continually reinterpret things that happened in the past uh, through the lens of today. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, actually, um, is there a sort of bell curve that we can apply to like the ease of studying or reporting on history? Like for the sake of the 20 year rule, we're talking about we don't know the full story because we're still living in it. Mm. On the other hand, you know, if you look back, like, say, four or five thousand years ago. Yeah. A lot of information could be lost. It could be rooted in myth. We don't sure. We're not sure what's reliable or what can be depended on. There's a lot of fuzziness there. Sure. Is there like a, okay? Once you get to about like 1100, we're pretty like 98 percent sure. Right. You um, know. Yes and no. I mean, it's not as clean cut as a bell curve necessarily, but like <laughs> there are def- there are definitely eras where we have more information than we do about others. So. When you look at Roman history, basically around uh, the time of like Caesar Augustus, like, mm-hmm. it's really well recorded because it's like really big events happening all at once. There's a lot of very literate people uh, and and well written people in power, and a lot of historians have a really strong um, impetus throughout like the past two thousand years to write about that point that period in time. Also, it's uh, you know the archaeological record for that time is really clear, so it's easy to go back and verify a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. There are other times, even more recently, where it's like, we don't even know what's going on. Even even before the Roman Empire falls, you know, a couple hundred years later, there's just not a lot of people writing things down. And the few who are, are basically writing state-sponsored propaganda, mm-hmm. which is a lot less useful to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, like, early 20th century is probably, like, the easiest to write about. Peak. <laughs> well, because we've got recorded, like, like, literally recorded, like, on film and on mm-hmm. audio, evidence of some of the stuff going on. You know, even even past the middle of the twentieth century, but like uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Kennedy secretly recorded all of the like behind the door discussions that were happening about how are we going to deal with the fact that Russia is trying to put nuclear weapons into Cuba. Right. And there's a bunch of bunch of people who thought they were operating under like executive privilege, which means 
I get to say things like, well, who cares if 10,000 people die? And it's not really supposed to be held against me because mm -hmm. we're very important people making very important decisions. And sometimes you have to say things like that, even though you don't want anyone to say it, right? Yeah, it's kind devil's of, advocate. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those realities of, of uh, being in power that like, it's kind of gross, but it's there. Oh, sure. And those of them who, who you know, when, when these recordings came out, they felt really betrayed by it, and understandably so, because they said some stuff that doesn't exactly make them sound great on those. But we have, like, the ability to listen to hours and hours and hours of tape of this stuff and get a really clear idea of mm -hmm. things that we can only dream of for other periods. You know, what was this person thinking? Why would they make this decision this way? Well, they're telling us in their own words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... But yeah, as far as history in general goes, um, you know, the more inf the, the more information we have, the better, and the more distance we have from it, the better. It's it's a lot easier to make a, a unified case for, you know, for example, something to do with the Mongolian invasions, where the number of people who are directly affected by it today are vanishingly small. Like it's not there's no there's no real skin in the game. Um, Unless you take one of those twenty three and Me tests, yeah, but he, right, right, right. But even then, even then, like, oh, yeah, exactly. But like, you know, in in here here in Canada, there's been a big thing lately about um, taking down statues of our first prime minister or renaming schools named after him, right? Because like, yeah, he's definitely our first prime minister, but he's also definitely, absolutely, our, the architecture of the residential school system, which. Uh, in his own words, was intended to kill the Indian and the child. They basically took Native children away from their families, uh, beat them if they tried uh, speaking their own language, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of other really horrible stuff. The last one closed in 1996, y'all. That's 22 years, I guess. Yeah, well, but we like, can just now start talking about it. We wouldn't have been able to at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's like there's there's living people that were affected by this yeah. thing. And like, yeah, and you can are talk. still being affected by it, by its echoes. Yeah. And, and are going to be for generations. And like, yeah, we can talk about, oh, that's history. Like, we, we can't touch history. That's our first prime minister. Yeah. But like, that's a remarkably is, privileged thing to say. <laughs> th that's, that's a real thing that real people are currently dealing with. And we have to kind of keep that in mind. But that's that's a thing that like, yeah, you can say this is 100 150 years ago that this happened but uh -huh. it's not really um not not in every sense of the word no, and so no. um that's that's the sort of thing where history does keep sort of touching us in in unexpected ways much longer than that 20-year rule so um how does history get made usually um shortly after the thing passes that 20-year rule and they start doing a little bit distant scholarship of this stuff they'll come up with sort of a generic or or, or a, a generally agreed upon version of events and then usually about 20 years after that uh, something called revisionism happens on almost every topic somebody comes out and says you know hey the, the, this uh you know generally agreed upon version of events i don't think that's true let's look at this new stuff that's come out let's look at this other way of thinking about it i think it's really like this and then these two sides will argue over which one's right and usually we come to somewhere in the middle and this is known as synthesis and history just constantly goes through this process of uh, uh revisionism and, th and synthesis uh creating sort of new interpretations because history isn't like a set in stone one version of events right there are certain facts that we can all agree on but mm -hmm. usually that's not the thing that we're actually concerned about you know so and so died on a certain date and that's fine but like what that means for the world is a different discussion this actually sounds like remarkably similar to the agile software development methodology mm. where you constantly iterate and then reintegrate new ideas into your existing product. Yeah. Uh, and you're doing the same thing where you've got the, um, what was the word you used for the revisionist? Yeah. And then the synthesis mm -hmm. to integrate it back in. Yep. 
it's a it's a pretty old idea in terms of history and and uh, social sciences in general because that's just how the uh, arguments tend to shake out. And meanwhile, I'm trying to search back in my head for when did like moon landing deniers start becoming popular? <laughs> when about was that? No, but absolutely in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah right. Okay, perfect. That, that's absolutely true. Um, and yeah, the, the first the first 15 20 years, no one said a thing about it being not real but because you were there yeah everyone saw it on tv there was no reason to expect otherwise you know it's it's the usual stuff and and you know i wouldn't necessarily fit them into the same mold but i i, I get your point it's, sure. it's on a, a very similar cycle well i mean on a, a larger scale let's say like holocaust deniers yeah well, exactly and mm-hmm. that starts in the 60s mm-hmm. and that's part of this wave of revisionism about the second world war that really comes up in the 60s where it's kind of like well, hang on, do we need to look at, um, you know, the effects of the Treaty of Versailles on the the sort of natu- uh, national uh, consciousness of Germany and, and its effects, you know, its economic effects on driving uh, Germany towards extremism? That sort of stuff, like the most sympathetic versions of that stuff start coming up in the 60s, mm-hmm. 20 years after. Um, it's it's a very real uh, phenomenon and it, it almost works on a timer. It's kind of amazing. But yeah, I, I think... In general, uh, history is an ongoing discussion. Uh, it always will be, um, because this stuff only has the meaning that we give to it, and we can only give it meaning in the context of our our own lives. So, you know, reading a history from two hundred years ago is is interesting and all, but it's not necessarily what relevant to us today. Yeah. So, I uh, hope that helps. This is from sansaman i'm guessing sorry if i said your username wrong but man i don't know it's not a real word (laughs) this is this is a thing i'm familiar with pronouncing internet handles is just not oh it's so fun possible uh they say we all know which historical figure you hate the most and which one is it spoilers though (laughs) but who's your favorite person from history or which person do you think has been unfairly vilified in the way that columbus is unfairly celebrated oh that's interesting yeah, it's an interesting question, and I don't want to seem evasive about it, but like I don't really ascribe to the whole idea of like, hey, like this is my favorite person, this is my historical hero, um, because I think having historical heroes is a really bad idea. It's so difficult to take somebody from another era and find them overall inspiring uh, in you know, while, while putting today's values onto them, which is not necessarily the fairest thing to them, I suppose. But at the same time, I I don't know that, you know, people get into this discussion of like, Hey, humans are innately good or humans are innately evil. And I think it's a really simplistic view of human nature. Personally, uh, people do good and bad things and, uh, you can do both good and bad things in the same life and still be a a complete person. That's not a, a contradiction. I can actually answer this question for myself. Oh, go for it! Um, <laughs> despite all the despite all the disclaimers, <laughs> and, and I will I'll, I'll front load this with saying that uh, I don't think this person uh, is vilified in any way. I just find them the most interesting sure. uh, historical figure. Um, I mean, you can both hazard a guess. It's a topic that we've discussed on the on the show before. We've discussed so much stuff, man. Ooh. I'm drawing a blank. Where to begin? Yeah. Hundred episodes, huh? Uh, Link. Oh, it, it, <laughs> no, it, it's it's one of my episodes specifically. That might narrow it down. Oh, Guy Fox. Um, no, <laughs> very much no. <laughs> That's good to hear. A large, astounding no. Did you listen to the episode? <laughs> it was a joke. No, I know. I'm just I'm just busting your chops. 
Uh, no, it would be Charlemagne. I still oh, find okay. him a very fascinating historical figure. Yeah. Uh, that's still one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. No, I, I, I get that. And I, I think what you get, uh, I think what that pick in particular illustrates is I think it's really, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have favorite things that people have done. And I think that's a little bit different thing than having a favorite person. Yeah. Um, because yeah. like, you know, you get, like, I've, I've seen so many needless uh, arguments over specific historical figures just all over the place because one, one of the things that taking someone and idolizing them in that way does is it removes the ability to really discuss uh, good things and bad things that that person has done because all of a sudden they're your tribe and you're really doubling down on anything. Like you get, uh, you know, the Winston Churchill uh, uh, fans that are just like, no, he was amazing. He ended the second world war. And it's like, yeah, but talk to an Irish person sometime. I'm rolling my <laughs> eyes real hard here. <laughs> or like, or like a Turkish person or like, there's, there's so many things that he messed up really badly. Also, he seems like a really unpleasant person personally. And it's like, I'm, I'm unfairly picking on him, but it, I think he's a really good example because I think a lot of people really look up to him and it's kind of like, uh, we should, we should maybe examine stuff like that before we put a person on a pedestal mm -hmm. rather than maybe some of the things that they've done to go all the way back. The example I was going to use was the uh, Edison versus Tesla thing. Mm -hmm, yeah. Cause that's another uh, figure, uh, Tesla that, you know, modern day we've kind of become enamored with. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he's not a perfect person. I think that he was kind of a raging misogynist, but I mean, he also didn't kill an elephant on film. So it's really like, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then you get into this issue of, of uh, um, relativism, right? Like, hey, who was worse, this person or that person? It's like, both of these people committed genocide. Like, why are we having this talk? <laughs> like, this is not a... Hey, they're both pretty bad. I don't, both, yeah. I'm not inviting either of them to dinner. <laughs> that being said, I did come up with a pick. Oh, lovely. Oh, wow. Cool. We all did then. Um, <laughs> In some form or another. <laughs> but but here's, here's the thing. I don't... I picked somebody that I don't think most people have heard of, and that's kind of a little bit my point. That's classic, Blasky. One of the things... <laughs> Rude, number one. <laughs> Accurate, number two. <laughs> what a precious indie darling. Um, no, okay, so here's my, my point being that, like, I think a lot of the people who are very famous historically, um, I think you have to sometimes do a lot of bad things to be uh, gain that level of notoriety. That well-known? Yeah. Um, have either of you heard of Norman, Norman Borlaug? No. He's an American scientist. Um, in the 60s and 70s, he ran a program... Uh, starting in Mexico and then moved into India, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, a little bit into Africa, uh, basically um, breeding new strains of wheat. Uh, in the mid-20th century, there was a really big problem in terms of agricultural production versus population. Um, there was a lot of famine. Like if you look at Africa in the 50s and 60s, there were millions of people dying of mm -hmm. famine. And he was put in, in charge of a program uh, to create new strains of wheat. And basically, he crossbred a few different species. Nothing, you know, we're not even getting into, like, GMO-type stuff. This is just classic crossbreeding. Mm -hmm. He developed a type of wheat that doesn't grow very tall, which is important because it doesn't break. Um, it's got really thick stalks, so it doesn't bend over. Generates a lot more wheat uh, grains than, uh, than most. Um, Norman Borlaug was given the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. He's, it's estimated that he saved about a billion lives wow. with his work. And 
I have heard of this now. Just kind of a guy, and he just kind of went to work and did his job. He found out about the Nobel Peace Prize while working in India, and his family ran out to the field where he was working and told him. And he said, no, I haven't. Like, that's <laughs> that's not real. This is a joke. And this guy passed away peacefully at the age of 95 in 2009, secure in the knowledge that he did an amazing thing for human, for the human race. And yeah, no one, no one really thinks of it because, it, you know, he didn't... He didn't make a mark in this big explosive way. He made it in this quiet way that, you know, completely averted disaster, but you don't notice it because the disaster didn't happen. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of criticisms of what he did. Um, personally, I don't necessarily agree with them. A lot of them are uh, environmental in nature, and it's kind of like, wow, these methods that he came up with are really like uh, machinery intensive. It requires a lot of irrigation, or there's the typical GMO type arguments against it. And his response has always basically been, you don't know what starving is like. You know, it's it's one thing to say that it would be ideal to do agriculture one way. It's another thing to just let millions of people die. And when I was faced with that choice, I, I don't think I could make the other choice. We just need to do it, you know, do what we need to do to feed these people. Mm -hmm. His inventions led to um, a lot of post-colonial autonomy for a lot of poorer nations, um, India and Pakistan especially, but uh, even moving into post-colonial uh, Africa, there was a lot of good that was done there. In fact, the only reason he didn't do more good in post-colonial Africa is because of interference from environmental groups who felt that uh, his methods were irresponsible. But again, it's it's about saving lives. So that, that would be my answer. Um, mm -hmm. But again, it's not... You know, like, it's not like I'm coming out and being like, it's Julius Caesar. Like, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Because, like, I don't think he was necessarily that great a guy. He made a huge impact. But, like, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and, and to, like, reiterate, I'm not saying that about Charlemagne either. It's no, just no. he's a fascinating figure who I still find very interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's not like I'm like, oh, he seems like a cool guy. I'll invite him to my party. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. He'd probably kill people after writing a poem about it. <laughs> Oh, what I was going to say is I, I'm almost hesitant to like name somebody because like from the outset, I'm already kind of conscious of the things that they've done, but it tends to, when you have a conversation like this, it's more about the sort of things in that person or, or actions that they've done that you value as a person. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of a scene in uh, Star Trek actually where someone from the future comes and they're like, what do you think is the most important invention between like the 21st and 24th centuries? Mm -hmm. And like the commander says like, you know, the warp drive and the doctor says all these cures and Worf is like all these weapons. And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, because you're a warrior, because you're a doctor, because you're an explorer. Like sure. That's why you would say that. Yeah. And I mean, like I've got some scientific idols, but I mean, that's not discounting a lot of things that like Isaac Newton did in his later life and stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. so it's hard to pick a person, but I think that even having a short list is indicative of what you value as a person. Yeah, it's it's tricky because people are complicated and trying to reduce people to really simple things like good to the four bad. historical feats that they've done <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 really difficult and honestly you're more likely to find out that your favorite was also just like also yeah just also a horrible racist at the same time right like or just something tiny even like yeah he just never tipped at a restaurant like what <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah no exactly and, and there's always those little things and it's it's gonna come inevitably and it's kind of a it's maybe better not to meet your heroes at all. So, yeah.
A Train V or A Train 5, not sure which one, uh, asks, can you go over the equipment and setup they use in recording? Sure. Um, I've changed this so many times. Uh, you guys can attest uh, almost every time you come in. It's, you know, something's different. Hey, how's it going? By the way, I've changed this about my setup this yep. time. I think most of the changes I've made over the years, the, the level of uh, improvement that I've gotten out of them are probably negligible or maybe even not noticeable for I, listeners I, I would wonder though that there's a cumulative cumulative effect i think if you listen to um the most recent ones versus you know episode one i'm sure you would notice a difference but i've made more changes than you can probably pick out just going through the, the, the list let's put it that way um currently i'm running um adobe audition for my uh recording software i've got a soundcraft notepad 12x or 12fx uh, soundboard that I'm running everything through. Uh, everybody's on Sure SM58 mics. Uh, if any of that is interesting to anybody that's listening, that's great. If not, sorry for the tech talk. But um, I, you know, I, I messed around with USB mics for a long time. Uh, when we first started this out, we used a, uh, a Blue Yeti. It started out with just one in omnidirectional mode between the two of us. Uh, that got that got a lot of room noise. So got real intimate too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you got pretty face-to-face uh switched to two yetis which sounded pretty good for a while but they're really sensitive um too sensitive and uh switching from a a condenser mic to a dynamic mic like the sm58 uh, i find is getting a lot better quality so um yeah these mics are an industry standard for a reason they're not a bad choice I, i think this was asked kind of in in reference to if somebody's interested in starting out with podcasting um, I got a lot of help from my brother, Ethan, who's been on the show before, who went through college to be a, a theater tech. Uh, so he knows a lot of stuff that I could just text him and ask that uh, isn't necessarily easy to find on YouTube tutorials. So I got a lot of help that way. Um, but for the most part, I would say, like, just try the stuff and, and tweak it until you start feeling happy with it. You can get it so far. But yeah, after that, it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, the best equipment for me, uh, you know, I'm not... I don't know if we've talked about this before, but, you know, I do projects online as well. Yeah. And uh, the best equipment is always the equipment you have now. Yeah. Just get true. started. Yep. Just get started. If you have a podcast in mind, just do it and improve as you go. And learn the equipment you've got first yep. versus deciding that uh, new equipment is necessarily going to solve your problem until you're very sure what the problem with your current uh, setup is and you do the research to figure out what the solution to that problem will be if you're just not sure and you're just buying a more expensive mic or upgrading your software and hoping that that's going to make it go okay it's probably not um it might you might get lucky but like it's it's better to to take your time learn your stuff and and do it deliberately i think as a counterpoint to this as well though <clears throat> with the understanding that adam just mentioned doing a podcast or any sort of production or any sort of project really is a hobby and it is okay oh, yeah. to invest and experiment in your hobby. Yes. So if you're just curious about a piece of technology and you have the budget to, you know, eat that expense, if it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. go for it. Yeah. That's a really great way to experiment. And, uh, like, of course do your research, but it is a, I highly recommend it as a way to, uh, sort of just build your experience. 
For sure. If it's worthwhile and it's a hobby of yours, then it's worthwhile to sink money into it. I am now just starting off on uh, some beer brewing at home. <laughs> oh, nice. And uh, I've basically put enough money into it so far that if I make three batches, it's paid for itself. Yeah. And after that, I'm already looking at what I'm going to upgrade to. Every hobby is like and, that. And you kind of get mm-hmm, going. And... A lot of hobbies have no upper limit either. You oh, can spend as true. much as you ever want. <laughs> Oh, yeah. If, if you handed me a couple grand today and said you can spend it on whatever you want for podcasting, they would be gone so fast. I wouldn't have no problem. And you'd already it. be looking at the next thing. Yeah, exactly. I already have a to do list that I could easily easily spend two grand on for any of my hobbies. Yeah. And like Miller just said, I know what the next thing would be after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that there is a unique uh, thing about this podcast over others, probably most that you listen to, which is that I insist on having people in the room with me. I think it's really important to the conversation. Yes. Um, there I'm are looking a lot at Miller of, right now. Yeah. I can't look at Phil and be speaking into the mic at the same time. But you know he's there. He's right there. <laughs> but I, I see him. He I can, see him. He can side on here. I'm tapping you. If you were to move suddenly, <laughs> I would notice. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's not true of a lot of uh, podcasts out there. If that's what you're doing and it's just kind of over Skype, um, th- not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but like a lot of the USB condenser mics are perfectly sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, Blues is a standard for podcaster for, for a reason. Their whole lineup is really strong. Um, just got bought by Logitech, by the way. Which really? Is interesting. Yeah. They're looking to expand their their sound uh, division, which That's is interesting. not a bad thing. No, I, I like Logitech too. It, it'll be fine. I'm not worried about it. They're my backup brand when my primary brand, who isn't paying me, so I'm not mentioning them. <laughs> <laughs> when when my primary brand's not available, I always go Logitech. Yeah, which I'm only mentioning because it came up naturally. But a lot of the tweaks that I've made are because I'm in I'm sitting in the same room, so you get a lot of uh, room noise and a lot of echo and things like that. Um, I've done a little bit to treat the room, but not a lot. I, I found I find it's better to get the right mic for the room and learn a little bit about post-processing uh, than it is to try and put up the foam panels and things like that. But that's my experience. Um, like I said, trial and error is, is usually the best way to go. Um, it, it doesn't take too long to dial it into where you want to be. That's why so many podcasts start off sounding a little bit rough and by you know, the 10th episode or so, or so, they're usually sounding much, much better. Yeah, I started our podcast with my old World of Warcraft headset, and uh, I have since upgraded to a like forty dollar microphone. And <laughs> you know, it's all we really need for the uh, kind of time that we're willing to put into processing. So yeah, yeah. Similarly, my project used to. I'm loath to self promote here. Um, it's fine. Phil does some streaming. I I, I stream on Twitch. Um, so I was using just a. Uh, 7.1 surround sound headphones but that had a mic built in mm-hmm. and i was using that for a while and i quickly realized that it sounded like garbage mm-hmm. and not that anyone in chat had ever said anything but no, i was just and like they won't. adam you got anything sitting around that i can experiment with and yeah. you know the mic i'm recording on right now i actually brought from my setup yeah um which was adam's beforehand yeah no i was happy to set you up with that it's a good little setup yeah but um, that that's to say is you know Back to the the point I had made earlier, the best equipment is what you have right now. Because yeah. I got started and, you know, was able to run a channel that people would come visit mm-hmm. just using a headset microphone. And, of course, there are returns when you upgrade to uh, a different piece of hardware. But at the same time, like, you can get started on very little. Yeah. Yeah. It's always today. Today is always the best day to start something like this i I should mention one other other thing i've mentioned it before here and there but like i I did do another podcast with my 
siblings before this one. And so I got a lot of practice on that before I started HI101. So uh, that, that was a massive help. I kind of missed that show. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had its time. Yep. <laughs> um, let's keep moving. Um, no. In, uh, that's too bad, Phil. It's my show. <laughs> See you later. Harumph. In your personal opinion, who, deser- who deserves the title of Third Rome? Even if there's no real answer, that whole concept is sure to be fun to talk about. It's from Sebastian. Are you guys familiar with this idea of like the Third Rome at all, at least vaguely? vaguely. Kind of. There's various people who throughout, or, or various groups throughout history, who've basically said that they're the spiritual successors to the Roman Empire. And it's almost always kind of tenuous. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of options out there. I'm really hesitant to pick one, mostly because I feel like the people claiming this almost always never have like a very good claim to it. Even so, so generally the second Rome is considered to be Constantinople because at, at uh, at one point in the the history of the Roman empire, they set up a a second capital in Constantinople, uh, modern day Istanbul. And they administrated the empire from two different capitals. There was an east uh, half of the empire and a west half of the empire. And when we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, it's the Western Roman Empire that fell. The Eastern Roman Empire keeps going for another millennia. And yeah, so so Constantinople is considered like the second Rome because the first one fell, but there's still a Roman Empire and there's still continuity. Now, the thing about that is that ends up being like we, we call it the Byzantine Empire now to kind of differentiate it. But because they saw it as continuity, it's not really considered a second thing by them. There are also big characteristics that change from the first Rome to the second Rome. Biggest things are the language switches from Latin to Greek. Um, there's a schism in the uh, in the church very early on that separates it into uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Constantinople becomes the seat of that. Uh, so there's the religious aspect to consider too. There's a, there's a lot of you know little changes that happen, the kind of things that happen over a thousand years of something existing, where you know someone in uh, the 1400s in Constantinople, while technically being Romans, would have absolutely nothing in common with like second century AD. Or, or CE, I should say, uh, Roman citizens. Like, they would not have anything in common with each other. So, already you're looking at a pretty tenuous link between those two, except at least you have a little bit of continuity there. For someone to then go, well, I'm the successor to Constantinople, and that makes me, therefore, like a successor to Rome, yikes. Yeah. Um, so, there's a couple of ways that you can look at it, um, but it all depends on what you consider Rome's legacy to be. Is it political? Is it about uh, a unification of Europe, basically, which is what was happening at the height of the Western Roman Empire? Then you can consider the Holy Roman Empire uh, uh, to be the, the third Rome in a way, because uh, it's it's established um, basically in response to um, the fragmentation of the of the Western Roman Empire uh, after the, the Eastern Roman Empire has been existent for some time. Phil and I talked about that at length at one point. Um, it's a pretty good episode. You should go look it up. And Chuck find the out, Great. Find out a little bit more. <laughs> um, but like that's if we're considering the Roman Empire's legacy to be uh, European unity and Latin heritage and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a really strong claim for Moscow, which is interesting because um, when Constantinople falls to the Ottomans in 1453, um, the 
I'm gonna, uh, I might get this wrong, but I believe it's the niece of the last uh, Byzantine emperor is married to Ivan the Third. We also talked about that on episode. episode. At that point, yeah, <laughs> the first episode <laughs> on the very first episode of the show. Still one of my favorites. Yeah. So if you consider the heritage of uh, the Roman Empire to be, um, you know, cultural, specifically religious, well, the seat of orthodoxy moves from Constantinople to Moscow at this point in time, as well as a dynastic uh, continuity from the the emperors of Constantinople to, uh, well, to, to Russia. So I suppose you could call that the Third Rome, but then, like, what about the Roman Empire, or uh, uh, sorry, what about the Russian Empire at that point in time screams Rome to you, right? Like it, it becomes very, very tenuous. There's similar things happening in Albania, in Bulgaria, in Serbia. They all have um, these continuity claims based on the fact that the uh, Byzantine emperor crowned them czar at some mm. point. And because he's gone, now that authority uh, transfers down to them. Similarly tenuous, right? You can even ignore Constantinople altogether and call the Holy Roman Empire the Second Rome, which some people choose to do because um, some people consider the Roman Empire to be much more Eurocentric than uh, is is the actual historical case. And so they're looking at Charlemagne as being the second coming of the Roman Empire. Uh, and in that case, you have people looking at um, Napoleon making claims for being the third Rome because he's unifying Europe in a way that hasn't been done since Charlemagne. Uh, unified all of Europe, which hadn't been done since Rome before him. Um, you have the uh, German Empire, founded in 1871, looking at itself as the Third Rome, as successor to the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but again, like all of these things are so symbolic and have so little meaning in terms of an actual continuity from Rome that I, I don't, I don't feel that strongly about any of them. Uh, one of the most interesting ones that I saw was the uh, European Union. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, sure. That's fun. But yeah. it and and like let's be clear, the European Union has never made any sort of no, claim no, to be no. the third Rome. That's not a thing. But like if you look at some of the uh characteristics of it, having a, a an overarching uh ruling body but independent states is actually very similar to the political structure of uh late period Rome. Hmm. Um it's got a unified uh economic system. It's got like a lot of really interesting uh parallels to the Roman Empire. That being said, like are we finally at a point where you don't have to call yourself a third Rome to do something kind of similar to Rome? There were a lot of people calling themselves the third Rome and doing a lot less uh, to, to earn the title. It just seems braggadocious. I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Like it yeah. seems like the ultimate act of hubris to call yourself the third Rome and then probably have your regime crumble after a couple decades. Well, I think there was a lot of history, and, and, and this sort of plays into it. There's a lot of history where the Roman Empire is considered the height of civilization. Mm -hmm. And until the Renaissance, like things are worse than they were in Rome. And people are looking back longingly at that period in time. It's this idea of like we've fallen from grace in some sense and that you have to look at Rome for some sort of uh, uh, guiding light to civilization. The Dark Ages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Dark Ages, um, which is a, a very silly concept. But, you know, when reduced far enough, makes some sense, at least in the way that specifically European people saw themselves. Um, We've gone over this, I don't know how many times on the show. There's a lot of very cool stuff going on elsewhere. But, Every time. You know. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. It's one of those things that bears repeating, I think. So um, 
what deserves the title of third Rome? I don't know. I think there was only one Rome. I think there was maybe two Romes with, mm. with Constantinople. I mean, even the Ottomans claimed that they were the third Rome because they were continuing on rule of Constantinople, except there had been a massive overturn in, in uh, rulership. So, um, What's that, uh, the, the phrase we talked about during Charlemagne? Uh, the Holy Roman Empire was not Holy Roman or empire. Or empire. Yeah. 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 That's a famous one. Um, I, I think a lot of this harkens back to an era where continuity was an important thing for legitimacy of power. And I think that that's become a much less important concept for people to hold power in a world where uh, more countries are democratic than any other system. You know, we can we can get into the weeds on that one if we really want to. But like the point being, you don't need some sort of link to something else that's uh, revered in order to have legitimacy of power. Um, as, as many problems as there are in the world, man, we've gotten much better at peaceful transfer of power than we used to be. Um, it's, it's not even, it's not even close. <laughs> I know things are bad some places. It's not even close. Yeah. You rarely hear about a president cutting the head off the previous president. <laughs> right? No, but it's, it's true. How many, like, I, I just, occasionally think of going back 400 years and telling someone like oh yeah no every four years we get a new leader and no one gets killed over it like that's that's a wild concept asterisk well <laughs> I, mean, I mean yeah but like again compares, yeah. comparatively speaking yes of course you know again we can get into the weeds but like that, the, even the idea that that's possible even if it doesn't happen every time mm -hmm. the idea that that's possible and expected that's bonkers i'm uh th this is another i don't know if this is a a, a meism or if it's a thing that happens to other people on the podcast okay but i am constantly when i'm on this reminded of bill wirtz's videos on history oh yeah and uh just talking about going back to peaceful and non-peaceful uh transfer of power mm -hmm. there's the the scene in his most recent uh the history of everything where he's talking about uh the french revolution i believe Mm. where Robespierre cut a, people's, a bunch of people's heads off until sure they cut his head off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, well, I guess that's not happening anymore. So that's, yep, progress. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that necessarily answers the, the question satisfac in, in a satisfactory way. But, um, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of use to that phrase. I think, I think, if anything, it tells us a lot more about the society that's claiming it for itself than it does necessarily uh, have any inherent meaning on its own. Um, anyone who's doing that has a, a need to find that historical legitimacy to cement their own reign. And when you look at somebody like Napoleon, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Or, you know, the newly founded uh, German Empire, something like that. It, it completely tracks. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What other podcasts do you find yourselves listening to? Um, there's a follow-up to this one which says, who would, oh boy. <laughs> who, would, who would win in a battle for long-windedness, Dan Carlin or Joe Rogan? I don't, Ooh. I don't listen to Joe Rogan. I have. Um, I don't know him well enough to really comment on that. I feel, here's the thing. I absolutely do listen to Dan Carlin mm. and Hardcore History is an amazing show and, uh, a big influence on me. Um, I can't imagine anyone getting more off topic than that dude, uh, while still somehow being on topic. His shows have just gotten longer and longer and longer. Um, his shortcuts are now like three and a half hours these <laughs> days. And it's like, come on, man, get it together. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not an avid, uh, Carlin listener, sure. but, uh, I've listened to a couple of Joe Rogan podcasts out of curiosity mostly. Yeah. And I would 
from what I know about both, I would agree with your assessment that there's just no way to beat Carlin's just length. <laughs> to be fair, Joe Rogan has guests. Yeah. Always, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So Almost he, positive. He has something to keep him on track. Yeah. Dan just goes and goes and goes and goes. So I, that would be my guess. But again, I, I don't have anything against Joe Rogan. I've just never listened to his podcast at all. So I, I can't really comment on that. Uh, it's an experience. Uh, that's a joke because it's called the Joe Rogan experience kicking you off my podcast bye um that's my second exit today mostly I don't listen to other history podcasts I I devote enough of my time per week to history podcasts most of which is to mine that um I only listen to so much more every once in a while I listen to Dan Carlin I usually wait until he's done all the parts of one of his series before I listen because um, I don't feel like listening to a part one of something and then waiting like two years till it finally gets to the final part. That's yeah, it just sucks. Uh, I also listened to um, Mike Duncan's Revolutions and and before that the um, History of Rome. Uh, other than that, most of my shows are either current events or comedy of some sort. Miller, do you want to? I, I think I should go next because Miller's going to take like it, six. It years. looks like he's pulling up a list. You don't have to list every single <laughs> one, man. You go ahead. Yeah, I, I my my list is a lot shorter. So uh, I do listen to HI one hundred and one, but I am still super far behind. Everybody is bad. That's okay. I know, but I feel bad. Um, I caught up this week actually. Hey, wow. good for you, man. That's amazing. Uh, my biggest uh, other podcast that I listen to is the RT podcast, also known as the Rooster Teeth podcast. Oh yeah, um, I've been a fan of them since. Like high they, school since they existed yeah basically I, I found out about them three months after they put out their first trailer oh wow. for red versus blue so i got a lot of history with that community mm. um and <laughs> the only other podcasts i listen to are other rooster teeth podcasts mm. not called the rooster teeth podcast so sure uh, off topic and always open um occasionally i'll listen to whatever fun houses one is called dude soup i think gross yeah okay. that, that was the point um they're an interesting an interesting group uh i don't listen to it much namely because it's called dude soup but occasionally they do talk about really good stuff wow okay miller uh well the thing is i listen to like 30 podcasts and the if you ha you've probably heard of a lot of them already is the thing mm -hmm. um in short uh if I'm recommending things under umbrella terms, it's either go to Maximum Fun. I listen to like a third of their podcasts. Yeah, I listen to a bunch of their stuff too. If I'm recommending one specifically, I would say The Adventure Zone, but that's because I'm a huge D&D guy and the McElroys are just incredible together. Um, but I listen to basically the entire McElroy family, unless it's just Travis, honestly. Yeah, fair no, enough. But he's growing on me more and more. Um, HI101 is the one that I recommend more than anything. Well, thanks, man. Um, because yeah, recommending <laughs> it to two people who are already listening to it. Yeah, I've got a, a handful of people, you know, hi, everyone that I've recommended. <laughs> I hope you're hearing me now. Um, That's awesome. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and it's HI101. Uh, Welcome to Night Vale and their family is pretty good. Oh, um, I kind of fell off of their stuff. It's it's something that I come and go and burst. Like they only do like two episodes a month, so occasionally I'll like come back and listen to like six or seven. Hmm. And uh, they have a new one that they is like just limited run three seasons. Alice isn't dead. That's uh, it's about to wrap up. Really worth a shot. Um, but uh, yeah, those are the ones I really recommend. Um, I think other than stuff that we've mentioned, I really like Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Hmm. Um, from the same network, there's uh, one called Song Exploder, which is really cool. Phil, have you listened to that one? You'd be no, really into but it. I've it's been on my you've heard of it list though, right? alongside uh, what is is Adventure Zone the one you're always bugging me to to listen to, Miller? Yeah. So Song Exploder comes out 
once a month, I think, or maybe once every two weeks. It's maybe 15 minutes long. But what they do is they sit down with a, an artist and they talk about like one song and they talk about it from writing to recording I would love all that. the way through demos and they play like specific stems out of the song. So it's like, you know, they'll be telling this story where it's like, so, you know, we were down at so-and-so's studio and he has this room full of like old synths and gave him this thing to listen to. And he came back three hours later with this weird little hook and it sounds like this. And then they'll like play the whole track at the mm-hmm. end. And it's like, I can kind of hear that somewhere in there, but like it's, it's all pulled out forward and they talk about their whole process and i i really like it as somebody who's really into music i i really enjoy it not for everybody but yeah phil you you love that yeah it sounds uh, right up my alley i'm not a music guy but even that show used to be on max fun mm-hmm. and uh even hearing the ads for it, i was like oh yeah this would be really interesting if i was into the subject matter at all yeah it's, it's very good mm-hmm. i just remembered two more mm-hmm. uh and they are actually worth mentioning uh cgp gray and brady Her- brady Haran's uh collaboration hello internet they messed up my SEO so bad because they got to they got to episode one hundred and one. Oh yeah. no! And it's they, they go <laughs> by you could say HI. Yeah, they go by HI. Oh, no, oh, that was brutal. That's uh, I'm actually really behind on that podcast as well, but it's definitely Delete one this part of the episode. <laughs> it's definitely one I'm going to catch up on. Uh, and the other one is I can't even I, I'm loath to think that I forgot this one, which is the Warp World podcast, which is a speed running podcast. Um, uh, hosted by one of my favorite Twitch streamers and uh, a few other uh, really good streamers in the Mario Maker community, but oh. they—it's not a Mario Maker podcast. They talk about Twitch culture, Twitch Twitch streaming, and everything that's kind of adjacent to that. So I'm a big fan of that one as well. So there you go. I guess you were probably here for history podcast recommendations, probably, and we—you got none of them. I've kind of got one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it, it's it's one of those things though, right? Like when you start doing something when you when you start devoting so much of your time to a thing it's it's hard to make that part of your leisure time too and like i mean it's not a secret but like i work a full-time job in in addition to doing this whole thing right like this is this whole show is is uh taken out of my free time so you know it it, uh it eats into things like listening to to history podcasts and and i I don't want to sound bitter about it or anything like not that i'm absolutely not but i only have so much history podcast time in me I actually know about someone who used to write science fiction and refused to watch, like, like, he wrote science fiction comedy and refused to watch Futurama for fear of cribbing. Yeah, I get mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And I, I can understand that as well. That said, uh, if I do have to call one in specifically that is history adjacent, uh, the Sawbones on the Maximum Fun Network is a really fun listen. Yeah, that one's pretty good. It's medical history. Yeah, I like and, that uh, one. Great chemistry between a husband and wife team. Mm. Uh, back to Adam's point about uh, enough history podcast in his schedule ask me how many games i play off stream now because it's very few yeah i believe that it's very few well, if i'm gonna, would you <laughs> if i'm gonna play a game now i'm just like i just gotta fit into this this stream schedule i i specifically now look for games this could that be I'm, monetized <laughs> no i specifically look for games that i'm not gonna want to stream mm-hmm. but i'm gonna want to play mm-hmm. so i can actually like have some downtime yeah and enjoy it yeah and game not while i'm streaming yeah yeah, for sure. Um, let's keep this thing moving. I have a question we can fill in for time. Hey, sure. Let's do it. Has Miller finally beaten me? Is he been on more episodes now or is this, are we tied? How does this, how's this going? You've been like a year off now, right? I have been. Yeah. I think he might be ahead. I, might I haven't have done a count. By one. I haven't done a count in a while. So Miller, you're, you're going to have a throat injury <laughs> soon. <laughs> Not from me. Yikes. 
That's... I think I'm up to eight if you don't count April Fools. Okay. I think, but I, I would be hard pressed to list them. I'd have to go back no, and I check. I don't know how many you guys are on offhand. You guys are the ones keeping track of that. Not me, so. uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the ones that I'm finding, because like at the beginning, like, you know, I don't know a whole lot about history. I, it's not a subject I took even in high school. I took like, you know, 20th century Canadian history, same as everyone else in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, um, it's not something I knew a whole lot about. So when Adam started this podcast, I came with like, okay, I want to know more about this and I want to know more about this. And I, I had my two subjects. And I think since then I had come up with like one more, but since then you've more or less been recommending topics to me that I might find interesting. And those I think have been my favorites. Yeah. Um, so I came with like Tesla space race, uh, Renaissance, and I think astronomy, but like the alchemy one, I really liked mm -hmm. it blew my goddamn mind. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the Aten heresy mm -hmm. and I think the Punic Wars is probably the favorite one I've ever done. I don't, oh, I, awesome. I, I didn't know that story at all. Yeah. And I like, like, except for like the barest concepts, like I'd heard of it and I'd heard of Hannibal and some sort of Alp crossing sure. <laughs> involved therein. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I, it was like sitting through a movie, even just discussing that. With you, it was like I was listening to a podcast as I was recording it. It was really entertaining. Mm -hmm. I think I've picked all of my episodes except Irish Independence, yeah, which was a bit right. of a no-brainer, and I'm really glad you suggested it. Yeah, because it's. I can't say it's my favorite because I think I love all of my episodes equally. And also, you got furious during that one. I, I was. Yeah, that's was, right. I was. I still actually like think think back on that and just start seething. But uh, I get that, that that was one of the best too sure uh so uh yeah that's that's really interesting to to see that balance of uh bringing topics in and you knowing us well enough to suggest topics that we're just gonna get absolutely hooked on yeah so got a question here from aaron um she says is there any story or topic you'd really like to cover but can't for whatever reason for example because it's too big obscure complicated controversial etc uh, she says, I'd love to hear your take on Alexander the Great or, say, the establishment of Israel after World War II and events like the Six Days War, but I can see how either of those could be difficult, Alexander for length and Israel for controversy. I think my answer for this would have been a lot different when I started the show uh, than it is now um, for a number of reasons. First of all, figuring out in a topic like Alexander the Great, for example, what to pull out and actually talk about to you guys versus what to skip over. And like, if you ask about it, cool, but if not, probably not the end of the world, I've gotten mm -hmm. a little bit better at doing that. Um, the other thing is when I started this off, like I had very, very little in the way of an audience and I had almost no interaction with any of you. And <laughs> like, I was so concerned about what feedback was going to be like when I started getting feedback because podcasting is not a medium where you get, feedback like at all basically like, yeah. not not that i don't get any but like the amount of people i know listen to this show versus the amount of people who say anything about show, mm -hmm. the show the the ratio is pretty it's pretty wild so i think if like the first like three or four emails i had gotten were all just like wow you suck at this stop doing history what are you doing like i i don't know if i'd kept i'd keep going yeah just because that stuff's well, kind of hard right and um, like history academics seems like they might be a contentious bunch mm-hmm well, and, and as we talked about at the beginning of this, history is innately political and you have to watch out for that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So um, 
Yeah, there, there were a lot of uh, landmines. There's there, there were absolutely topics that if you guys had come to me and said, hey, can we talk about this? I would have said absolutely not. And I'm not going to name them on air because that's just <laughs> like, foolish. I'm not, I'm, not, the power. <laughs> I'm not born yesterday, you guys. Like, I know how that's going to go. I'm going to get nothing but requests for those things. Um, that being said, I think that there are topics that I've done since then. Um, that had such potential, I think, to go really badly, and they just didn't. They went fine, and I'm really happy with the way that they turned out. That uh, the, the the breadth of um, potentially controversial topics that I'd be willing to tackle has has grown massively. Um, it's not like I've never gotten negative feedback. Absolutely, I've got, come on, I'm on the internet, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but like. The, the amount of that versus really, really positive stuff I'm hearing from people uh, makes that a lot easier to ignore. And also just, you know, getting used to the fact that, hey, you're on the Internet. People are going to say stupid stuff like I, I get comments about just anything, literally anything. Um, and some of you just kind of have to look at and go like, well, this person isn't the person I'm trying to reach. And there's not much I can do about that. Right. Yeah. Um, I get comments about you guys occasionally. Sometimes I pass them along. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> um I cringe but like see, okay so here's, here's the thing like in the same week it's miller i'm gonna single you out i remember you. hearing Finally, this story yeah. in, in the exact same week i had somebody tell me that you are their absolute favorite guest Aww. and they love it every time you're on and they wish you were on more well hey that person that, thank you that exact same week i had somebody leave a review saying that they had to stop listening to a podcast because <laughs> you were on it they loved the topic and they couldn't finish it i have a feeling i you. know which topic it was no you don't oh, okay. it's not the one you're thinking <laughs> okay. i know what you're thinking and it wasn't okay so like but like that's the thing those things happened like three days apart and like how you know that's not useful for you no that's not not, you know and and i get the same stuff well and i'm like any other human that exists on the internet too and i'm putting myself out there creatively even as a guest on someone else's show and i'll take like 10 positive comments and be like hey that's nice but then the one negative just digs right exactly (laughs) exactly i had somebody leave me a five out of five like a five star review Uh but at the end they're like by the way, the theme song's too long, and I like stewed over that for like a week. <laughs> <sighs> what do? Um, and it's fine. It's fine. It's it's absolutely legitimate uh, feedback. It's not that. It's just like it, that stuff hits you kind of strangely. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, as far as something like Israel, for example, I I don't know. I think maybe I'm I'm not important enough of a person to really. Uh, be in any danger of saying something like so controversial that it's actually mm-hmm. going to come around and bite me in any way. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. Um, well, the fear is that you become large down yes. the line, right? Yeah, of course. And like, oh, here's the that Adam said about uh, Israel back in 2018. Yeah. So, but but like I said, I've I've done shows that could have uh, hit that mark in the past, specifically stuff to do with uh, Canadian history. Like, there's there's some stuff that we've talked about in terms of uh, the history of relations between. Uh, Europeans and First Nations in in Canada that was, you know, um, I had to think about very carefully how I was going to word some of that stuff. We had that smallpox episode. I was literally just thinking that. That smallpox episode was just... I. It was was hard to listen to. uh, But like that, I'm not worried about offending anybody. True. You know... It's recent, though. Yes. I suppose. Um, But anyways, um, yeah, like I've, I've at least done a couple of those now that I know... I feel like I have a better sense of like what lines I could like yeah. edge up to mm-hmm. and what things I would be okay with talking about. Like even 
um, like this isn't that contentious, but like even stuff like talking about the Protestant Reformation, like anytime you're talking about somebody's religious beliefs, like you, you watch yourself a little bit, right? And the the secret to that for me has been like just stick to the facts. Like this mm-hmm. isn't a this isn't a show dealing with the metaphysical. We can talk about um, what a group proclaims to believe, but you don't weigh in on any of those beliefs. Is, is kind of the the distinction there, right? Like, but but that's yeah. how you do it, and and you can talk about why those beliefs matter in relation to other groups with different beliefs, but like you don't you don't go and then this one is the right one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like that's, that's just not how it works. Um, so in the case of something like Israel, I don't know if I would do that one specifically because yeah, that, that one can get pretty hairy, but like, I also won't say like, definitely no. Um, it's a really interesting story and you know, some of the stuff, uh, it's just, it is what it is. Like the things happened that, that happened. And those are the things I stick to. Um, it doesn't have to be about coming out in, uh, support or defiance of any specific thing that's happening now. Um, you can do it without getting into that stuff. Now, I think there are better topics out there personally, but the, the list of things that I would refuse to do has gotten significantly shorter over time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Now that said, mm-hmm. how many times have you told me no? I've <laughs> never told you no because the topic was something that I thought we would get in trouble Yes, for. and that's, that's why I said now that said. Mm-hmm. But there have been multiple times um, due to other issues. Uh, I mean, you know, breadth of the topic, uh, lack of information on the topic. Sometimes I just feel like I don't know them terribly well. Like there's, there's been times where it's like, Hey, I'd love to talk about that. I don't know this and I don't have the time to do the research to get to know it in time to record this thing. Well, as I I recall, Korea took a lot of research for you. Oh man, that was a long one. It it was, I I thought it turned out really well. It was an amazing episode. (laughs) I sent it to a couple of my friends who are of Korean heritage and they were, (laughs) no, they loved it. Because they don't know. Right. They, they didn't know. That's interesting. It's just, it's uh, the, the details of that, that part of the, the history just, yeah, it's not commonly known. And then there's other stuff too, where it's like, if somebody came to me and was like, Hey, let's talk about, I, I'm picking an example out of the air, but if somebody was like, Hey, let's talk about the, um, the war in Yugoslavia in the early nineties, I would be like, no. Cause like, I don't like, I don't even know how I could insult somebody about that stuff, let alone how to navigate it properly. Like, I'm worried about just like being so ignorant yeah. that I would cause issues rather than um, putting something out that like I knew people might not like, but could at least stand behind it. Oh, man. You know what I mean? I know that my grandmother gets upset that her passport says Serbia, not Yugoslavia. <laughs> sure. Um, again, I don't, don't know. <laughs> that's not where it. she was like, born. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fair. And I understand that there's a lot of, uh, tensions there and mm-hmm. I don't understand them well enough to get into them. So, um, that is more likely to be an issue in terms of controversial than necessarily like, whew, too, too spicy. Not going to touch that. <laughs> that's a yeah. Um, in terms of breadth, yeah, there's stuff out there, but like there's, there's always way to, ways to deal with, uh, specific aspects of them. Um, big one that I've always avoided with you guys. I don't know if I've ever explicitly come out and said this to either of you because I don't think either of you asked for it. Mm. I just stay away from World War II. Like everybody's got a World War II show. Yeah, I I enjoy World War II history. It's not that. It's just that like it's been it's been done. You guys. That's one of the reasons why I never asked for it. Yeah, that was one of the grade school so. things that I picked up. Like the exactly. the War of eighteen twelve is one that I knew a lot of already because mm-hmm. it is one of the things I learned in school and and same with World War Two. Yeah. Um, what I would kind of like to go over. We had, we talked about like subjects you won't touch because you know they've got sort of uh, 
touchy subject matter and stuff like that but yeah. there, there have been times when like me or or my co-conspirator matt mm. have come to you like hey how about this for a show and it's either going to be like well we could talk about that but it's going to be like 45 minutes and then it's done sure or it's like i wouldn't even know how to make a narrative out of that and like it's it's too yeah. or it's too big and there's really no story there like it would it would be like three months worth of podcasting sure yeah and, and there are, there are those stories where i just don't know how to fit it in um, I, you know, I, I love trivia and stuff like that. That shouldn't be a surprise, but like, that doesn't necessarily mean that I can make a two-parter episode. Mm-hmm. Think, right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we did an entire one on the industrial revolution. The second industrial revolution is really interesting too. kind of early 20th century where you're talking about chemical engineering, uh, mm-hmm. synthetic rubber is a really interesting story. And, uh, you know, how do you make a, a full thing out of that? Right. Um, but it's but it's interesting stuff. It's just it's not as easy to say, you know, once upon a time this happened and then go through all the events and here's here's the wrap up. Well, and it's something that we've heard you say on this podcast I, I'm, I'm several times before, as far as I've noticed, at least uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, we'll introduce a subject, you know, a new subject for the month. And ooh, this one was hard to research. Or, ooh, I struggled to find like a clear story to tell here. So I'm going to ignore a lot of ex- like you said that even for the Industrial Revolution recently. Yeah. Where it's like, well, we're going to talk specifically about the British Industrial Revolution because that's the one that most people are referring to and so I'm like there's obviously different things happening in different European countries in China for example well and and yeah even within Europe there I mean the 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 German Industrial Revolution is a completely different thing number one because Mm -hmm. it happens you know 70 years later number two it's inextricable from German independence and so a lot of the stuff that's that's dealt with in the German Industrial Revolution is stuff that Dan and I would have talked about Mm -hmm. in the founding of you know the the the, uh, unification of Germany episode because things like building the the railroads in germany it's all british technology but it's also like an act of defiance and national unity on the part of the germans because like it's it's more a story about that than it is necessarily about building railways it's a cultural thing at that point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and then i found luck in my subject sometimes by either picking like a huge story but it has a very narrow focus like astronomy where it's like okay well this starts at the dawn of civilization Mm -hmm. (laughs) and goes till the future Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like or boiling it down to something very specific location like italian renaissance not just renaissance yeah 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 so I've, I've found luck there you know it's easier to tell a story when you're getting specific or very linear at least mm-hmm. yeah so um yeah in terms of subjects that are too big um not not many it's more just finding the the right focus the through on line it. yeah uh like i said world war ii no but like hey if you guys ever want to talk about like specifically like code breaking in the pacific or something like that we could probably make a thing out oh, of that now right? i do <laughs> yeah i was just like i could i could stand to get brushed up on that again that, that was just off the cuff i don't, yeah. I don't mean that as a specific oh. yeah. i mean I, I, episode 102 <laughs> <laughs> i've got a software development background here i'm like mm, code breaking yeah, there, there's no cool, thing or two about that there's some cool stuff there but like i'm i'm not there's there's never going to be a point in time where we're gonna sit down and talk about like you know action starting with like the invasion of poland in 1939 and ending with the assault on berlin in 1945 like that's just not a thing that's ever going to happen because i could never do it in that amount of time Mm -hmm. like i couldn't do it justice and number two everyone knows that already and that's not really the point of this show well this is this is something i was going to bring up why would you ask about world war ii when you have so many resources to learn about that when you present the opportunity for us to learn about whatever we want Mm. right like Russia 
episode one mm-hmm. was so formative in my knowledge and understanding of history because no one had taught me that before and it didn't know where to learn it. Yeah, and that was an episode that was great for a beginning one because it was like basically at the dawn of civilization, right? Like it was mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dank river valleys. <laughs> there you go. Horse archers. <laughs> <laughs> Those horse, horse archers, you gotta watch out for them. They every really hack stuff up. <laughs> they, they're gonna get you. <laughs> they're gonna get you. You think they're running away, but nah. Mm-mm. Horse can go anywhere. <laughs> um, I've got one final uh, question, also uh, from Sansomin, or however you say that one, uh, which is Will you be having a few drinks before discussing Columbus? <laughs> As um, it turns out. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, Let's say you're going to run a marathon. Like, obviously, you spend months. <laughs> obviously, you spend months. Cut. No, we're like, done. say, like, four years <laughs> or exactly so. exactly what we're doing here today. Uh, training, right? And you work at it every day and you get ready. But, like, it'd be a mistake not to stretch day of, right? Enough said, I think. <laughs> I didn't really get that point, but okay. <laughs> you got to prepare yourself. You got to prepare. Yeah, sure. So you've been drinking all this time, but why not have one now? <laughs> Is that your point? No, you stretch the day of too. Okay, got it. <laughs> Let's take a quick break because I don't think that worked that well. Anyway, a refill. <laughs> we'll be right back. We're back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Hello. And Phil Downey. Hi, hi. And doing an episode with two guests instead of one, which is kind of weird. Um, but not I'm excited. Just, not just any episode. Not just any episode. We're going to be talking about my favorite historical uh, uh, character, Christopher Columbus. He's come up once or twice before. You know, in passing. <laughs> no, boo. <laughs> I, I usually get kind of annoyed when he does. Uh, so I think it's finally time to talk about why I get so annoyed. So Christopher Columbus, born in 1451 in Genoa, Italy. And his dad was... <laughs> That's all I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, had Great. to. This is gonna be. <laughs> That's my last contribution for this episode. <laughs> had to. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he was the son of a, a wool weaver and cheese merchant. Like he, he did both cheese and wool. And uh, to be a Genoese uh, uh, merchant in this time period, you'd make pretty decent money, and you'd spend a lot of time traveling, um, specifically getting things through the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Um, However, in 1453, as we talked about a little bit in the Q&A, Constantinople falls to the Ottoman Turks. Womp womp. And they immediately decide that um, they don't really want to give the Italians access to all of these goods from the Far East. And Europe's come to really enjoy these goods. So it's a little bit of a problem for them. Turns out your food is better when it doesn't taste like rot. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a difference. (laughs) Turns out silk is very nice. Um... Columbus spends his early years apprenticing on trade vessels. Um, a big part of the effort uh, in trade, especially by the Italians, after these trade routes are cut off, is um, trying to find out if there's a way to sail around Africa um, into the Indian Ocean. And it's it's mainly the Portuguese that actually take the lead on this, uh, this um, exploration. They commission uh, ships that sort of sail down the coast of Africa and they establish these little trade posts along the way where they uh, um, basically carve a little bit into the into the coast. They set up a, an outpost with a few people, uh, just enough there to make sure that there's always uh, food and fresh water for vessels that are coming through. But it's not really like a colony in the truest sense of the word. It's, it's definitely like a, a trade outpost. Um, 
so he um he would have spent his years sailing even uh potentially as far as uh iceland england things like that he was fairly well traveled but all of this is kind of in in uh pursuit of commerce uh working for his father i have a question mm-hmm. was he good at that part of the job <laughs> uh, a little foreshadowing <laughs> by, by by all accounts he was a perfectly competent sailor in terms of being a teenager on a merchant vessel and probably not having a ton of responsibilities fair um his um you know he, he got married very early which is nothing to write home about he had several children uh another son with his mistress uh, at a different port um but he was stand up enough to recognize him and provide monetary support which is not a thing that everybody would do at that point in time so i guess that's one thing going for him i was gonna say is he one of the the few kind things you have to say he was very ambitious uh he went out of his way to teach himself uh portuguese latin castilian uh, which is uh, uh, Spanish language. And this was all kind of in service of learning as much as he could about things like astronomy, geography, history, uh, even mathematics, because uh, that time on on vessels, he was convinced that uh, time at sea is where he belonged. Um, he, he really saw himself as, as uh, one of the great sailors of the world. He was also obsessed with biblical prophecy. He would comb through the Bible looking for uh, various verses that would be somehow applicable in his daily life. So, you know, on, on one hand, he's reading like Plato and things like that. On the other hand, he's uh, he's combing through uh, every bit of the Bible and he's really taking those two pieces of evidence kind of uh, at the same amount of weight uh, in, in most of the things that he's doing. And that's going to come back a little bit later to bite us. <laughs> These Portuguese navigators, um, finally managed to round the Cape of Good Hope in what's now South Africa in 1488. Uh, a sailor named uh, Bartolomeo Diaz uh, was the first one to, to make that trip. And this was a really big deal because the Portuguese were going like, finally, this is, this is what we need to get to India and to China, specifically to get access to the Spice Islands. Now, once you get around Africa, obviously there's a long way to still go, but it's better than nothing is kind of the thought there. It's a heck of a benchmark. Mm-hmm. But before that, like in, in this sort of era where of about 30 years or 25 years or so, where we're not sure how we're going to get back to China, there were going around Africa wasn't the only option that was being thrown around. Specifically the, in the 1470s, there was an astronomer uh, named Paolo del Pozzo Toscanelli who suggested that sailing west could actually be faster and easier than trying to go around Africa. He thought it was simply too far south before you could get around Africa and that the voyage was going to be too long and too difficult. Um, it was thought that, uh, or he believed that if you just sailed westward from the Canary Islands is usually what's considered the the place to start from. Canary Islands are a little group of islands off the coast of Morocco um, held by the Spanish. It was kind of considered like the westmost point of, of Europe or, or of the known world at that point. So he figured if you sailed west from the Canary Islands, you could get all the way around the globe to to Japan, basically. This was generally rejected as too dangerous. Most people figured that it was a little bit too far to go that way. We did not know about the Americas. So uh, it seemed extremely risky, at least going around Africa, even as long as it was, you could set up these little trade outposts and, uh, you know, reprovision as needed. So at this point, 
people generally have a good idea of what the circumference of the Earth is, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's this misconception that the Earth was thought to be flat at, at this, this point this in time. Yeah, no. Absolutely false. Um, people have known that the Earth was round since antiquity. I mean, 3rd century BCE was when Aristophanes first measured the circumference of the Earth. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this story. This was with the, um, the obelisks? Uh, the shadows no, and whatnot? with the wells. Oh, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so he found a spot where the well... Uh, well, it, it was wells and a staff of a... Uh, consistent length so he found a place where the sun could be seen at the bottom of a well at midday and mm -hmm. determined that that was the equator which is a reasonable way of determining it um, then traveled north to alexandria uh, on the coast of the mediterranean in egypt and at midday measured the length of the shadow of the staff and then used that and extrapolated it to find out the uh, circumference of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. So the uh, the angle between the shadow of the staff and the top was the number of degrees that he had moved up the earth's uh, um, latitude. Yes. And then measured and then used that compared to the distance traveled from the original city, I forget the name at the moment, to Alexandria and extrapolated that to the entire circumference of the Earth. And he actually got pretty close on the on the distance. Yeah, considering he was using a stick. Yeah. Um, Measuring shadows. Yeah. But like, <laughs> again, his me his methodology is sound and it's it's sound enough to get a, a, an estimate that's accurate enough that we're not really going to be able to beat it until the advent of very sophisticated measuring technology. Mm -hmm. um, so... The question of whether the Earth is round or not is not, that's not a thing at all. That's yeah. actually a fabrication from this uh, biography, we'll use that term very loosely, of, of uh, um, Columbus that was written in uh, 1828 by, um, it's the same guy who wrote uh, Sleep, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Um, oh yes i did hear about this yeah so I'll, I'll add his name in the notes i can't find it for whatever reason but he wrote a biography of columbus which was basically non-factual it was it was completely made up it's just that columbus was kind of coming back into fashion then it was mostly fictional and people latched onto it as though it was the reality so that's going to be a big part uh, a big part of the the national conception of columbus um you know centuries after his death so that popularized this idea that he was the first one to think that the world was round that's not the case um what there was some discussion on was how big the uh, the world was because in the centuries since aristophanes had measured the world we've gone through a number of unit conversions and people aren't always necessarily certain what different units mean there's been arabic miles there's been roman miles the consistency of uh, a mile even within these systems is iffy at best i mean we're, we're talking about very approximate units rounding errors they're they're gonna get you and it's not just rounding errors it's the fact that the uh, arabic mile is uh, about three quarters of a roman mile yeah, oh, that'll do it. Yep. So like, <laughs> that's almost exactly. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll be a that'll be a bit of an issue. So Columbus wasn't the only one who was uh, not doing a great job at estimating the size of the world at this point in time. This uh, this astronomer Toscanelli, uh, who Columbus would have been very familiar with, uh, also thought it was the world was much smaller than it actually is. The thing is, um, people were miss or were underestimating the size of the world by like a little bit in general and then there were people like toscanelli who were kind of underestimating it to an extreme and then columbus was just like a little bit further than like the 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 
uh, widest part of the the general range. Um, Columbus was not only going off of Aristophanes' incorrect estimates of the size of the world. He also believed that Japan was much larger than it is. He believed it was much further east off the coast of China than it actually is. He believed it's much closer to the equator than it actually is. And he believed that there was a fairly major chain of islands that was even further east than Japan. He also... um, (laughs) Based on what? Sorry. (laughs) uh, A lot of this is reports coming back from various merchants uh, that have done some trading on the Silk Road. Remember, this is still within living memory. Okay. So you have like Marco Polo, which is considered like an extremely factual Mm -hmm. uh, account. And there's been various holes found in that since. Um, Plus... I'm terrible at remembering yeah. the names of things like this, but is this a case of confirmation bias where he was only really looking at the information that fit his theories and would allow for him to be the great sailor he thought he was? There's one other piece of information I haven't mentioned yet. I mean, you're, you're right, absolutely. Okay. But I was about to ask that same question. <laughs> remember we were talking about his obsession with biblical uh, prophecy. I wonder if this brought it into it too. Second book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 42 Upon the third day, thou didst command that the waters should be gathered in the seventh part of the earth. Six parts hast thou dried up and kept them, to the intent that of these, some being planted of God and tilled, might serve thee. Based on this verse, he believed that the world was six parts land to one part water. Mm -hmm. And so he was looking for things that would confirm that the Eurasian continent would be a good six-sevenths of the earth's surface. Ah, okay. There's yes. much less ocean, therefore sailing is much closer than he's expecting. Oh, he's expecting it to be very short sailing distance. Yes. Uh, so as we know today, the Earth's <laughs> surface is about 70% water. I was just going to say, do you have that stat on hand? Because I don't remember it, but I know it's more than half. How many sevenths is that? <laughs> it's around 70%. Um, I'm not doing that conversion. <laughs> Approximately five sevenths. All of this rolled in together resulted in Columbus estimating that the sailing distance from the Canary Islands to Japan was about 3,700 kilometers. It's actually about 20,000 kilometers. It's pretty close. Almost got it. So he, he believed the Earth was a full uh, one quarter smaller than it actually is. Now, I was going to say, what is that, five, six hours? <laughs> basically. Of- yeah, six, six hours. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, By America, <laughs> exactly. Well, literally. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Oops. That's the whole point of all of this confusion. That's spoiler alert. So let's let's talk about how you would measure the circumference of the Earth if you were in the 15th century, and we're uncertain on all of this stuff. This is the thing that boggles my mind about this discussion. It's not necessarily that difficult yeah, couldn't they just have repeated the original experiment that yes what's his i forget his name aristophanes aristophanes could have just d- done it again yep <laughs> seems like it was documented <laughs> well, and yes. repeatable correct <laughs> like you know using science yeah and i mean there's there's the slight problem of him me- measuring the circumference uh latitudinally rather than longitudinally but you can also travel to the equator and uh measure off how long it takes for uh like they have timekeeping right it's not great but you can measure off how far you have to travel along the equator before uh you've lost an hour of time hmm. 
it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than going off of guesses of half-baked astronomers and Bible verses. And even if you still went off of the the method that was used, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, the estimate is much closer than what he came up with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, much closer. I, I don't remember this specifically because I forgot to put it in my notes, but I'm pretty sure that Aristophanes was within about a thousand kilometers of the actual circumference of the Earth. Which is ridiculous considering the methodology he yeah, was using. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 40,000 kilometers. That's yeah. a very small margin of error. Yeah. And uh, the, the, method, the method that he used was extremely repeatable and extremely uh, logically sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a long, long time ago, and the method was not lost. The only thing that was lost was... Um, the exact number that was the result, and that was an issue of a, a unit conversion. You could use modern units to replicate that uh, that specific experiment. I, I forget what book it is, but there is a anthology from Neil deGrasse Tyson where he basically explains everything that you can learn about your planet with a stick, a patch of mud, and view of the sky. Okay. <laughs> and it's just basically like, you know, where the shadows land and all these distances and, and longitudes, latitudes that you can measure. Right. And uh, I don't remember the specifics, but uh, it is really interesting, the sort of stuff that if you know to look for it, mm-hmm. you can figure out. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there, there's other things beyond, you know, the writings of, of the ancients that prove all of this stuff. You can see a, a sailboat dip below the horizon with your naked eye. Like, it's not hard to figure out what's going on there. Uh, the, the roundness of the Earth is a pretty firmly settled thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just It's just the fact that, you know, getting out that measuring... Uh, stick and doing it is is i'm rolling my eyes <laughs> yeah it's it's deserved um especially if you're planning on just like sailing out into the great beyond not knowing what's coming um to just go to royalty and say um you know i'm pretty sure it's about this far anyway sponsor my voyage <laughs> seems absolutely ludicrous and yet that's exactly what columbus decides to do in 1485 he goes to john ii of portugal and says hey pretty sure japan's only 3700 kilometers that way should get there in a couple weeks sponsor my voyage <laughs> nah and john ii says no he, he he runs it by his uh his advisors and basically all of them go like listen pretty much everyone thinks the earth is much bigger than that like a much bigger than that and their units are still a little bit off but like not nearly as off as columbus um and john goes like no i'm not giving you boats to just sail into the middle of the ocean where you all die of starvation that's <laughs> dumb um and he he rejects columbus outright by the way columbus is asking price for all of this and and we should establish this up front because it's not going to change for anyone that he talks to on all of this <laughs> Here's what he wants to find across. He calls it the ocean sea. It's but uh, uh, that's what they call the Atlantic. Um, he wants the title of Great Admiral of the Ocean. So he wants this to be his Done. official. His official <laughs> title is Great Admiral of the Ocean. Um, he wants governorship of any discovered lands. Wow. And he wants one tenth of all profits generated from ocean trade. <laughs> oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> a replacement for the green silk rose. I'll just take a, t- a tenth of that, please. In perpetuity. Yeah, correct. <laughs> oh, What's geez. the big deal? <laughs> Me, the great admiral. <laughs> um, Let's be clear about something before we get to go too much further, because one of the biggest mis- misconceptions of Columbus for a very long time was that he was the first European to land in the Americas. It's not even remotely nope. true. 
number one, we've talked about Leif Erikson and uh, the time that the Vikings spent in Vineland. Uh, uh, I think that was with Dan? I think it was Colin. No, I think it was Colin Oliver. Yeah. I could be wrong. Anyways, it's been discussed. It's been discussed. Um, you, you know, can go see the mounds. He was he was there 400 years before all of this. So, you know, got that one. Um, number two, there's pretty strong evidence that in this time period, there were already uh, people from the British Isles fishing off the Grand Banks, off the coast of Newfoundland. <laughs> because for anyone who doesn't know, the Grand Banks at this point in time were so choked with cod that you would basically go out there, people would drop buckets into the water and pull them up and it would have cod in them. Um, the cod fisheries were incredible. Um, the thing is, if you're a commercial fisherman and you've got a line on this, you don't necessarily want to blow it up. It's a little easier just to sail out, come back with some fish, sell them, be on your way. It's not really that clear how long this was going on before Columbus sailed. It was definitely happening. There's very good evidence for it. Finally, there have been Native Americans there for a very long time. But like, <laughs> well, you know, let's not talk about that, right? Um, anyways, uh, yeah, for, for Columbus to be considered the first one to do this, no, that's, that's just silly. Cut, cut yeah. that out. Anyways, Columbus tries again with John II uh, three years later in 1488. Um, and is rejected again mainly because Diaz just rounded the Cape and there had been a massive breakthrough in the Portuguese uh, exploration efforts. So he went back to the same guy with no new information, the same offer, mm -hmm. <laughs> with less reason to do it at all. To be fair, when he made the offer, Diaz hadn't actually returned from the Cape yet. Uh, it's just that John went, let us talk it over, and then like, two months later i think it was ds comes back and he's like good news <laughs> hey listen we got it so he was rejected again mm. uh at this point he decided to kind of widen his efforts but concentrating on portugal wasn't necessarily a dumb move on his part they were the forefront of of naval explor uh, exploration at this point no questions asked he decided to go to genoa and to venice but they had absolutely no interest in sponsoring this voyage he also sent his brother bartholomew to henry the seventh of england uh, no luck there either. Um, England was not interested in, in exploration just yet. Finally, he goes to Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile. Ferdinand and Isabella could probably use their entire own topic at some point. They're a very, very interesting power couple. Essentially what's happened here, though, is that Spain was divided up into all these little kingdoms um, and, and a few larger kingdoms. and. Ferdinand and Isabella's marriage uh, cemented uh, two of these kingdoms together and using their combined military power and sheer charisma, they managed to conquer a lot of the rest of Spain and unify it, Portugal being the main holdout, which is why it's still a separate com uh, country. But not only did they do that, they also um, prosecuted the Reconquista to its uh, finale. It had been going on for a long time, but essentially there's been Muslims, who they called Moors, in Spain for centuries at this point in time. Under Ferdinand and Isabella, they expelled the last of them from the Iberian Peninsula. And this whole thing makes them very wealthy because they seize a lot of uh, wealth. It was silver, in the, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, there were silver, silver mines already in, in uh, Spain, but also seizing a lot of wealth from these uh, Moors that are being expelled oh, from Spain. Um, they're also like a very pious, like, 
Catholic poster couple kind of thing. Like they've got very close ties to the church and they see this whole thing as being like a very religiously necessary act. Providence. Yeah. And I, I mean, they've got, you know, there's, there's plenty of problems with that as well, but we we're not talking about them. We're talking about Columbus today. So um, Columbus goes to them and basically the first time he talks to them, they say no, but they're interested enough and they're wealthy enough that they basically put them on retainer. Uh, they go, we don't want to sponsor this just yet, but you know what? Uh, here's a letter from us. It's sealed. It's official and whatever. Basically saying that anyone in Spain has to offer you food and lodging free of charge. Stay in Spain. As long as you don't go to another monarch, you can live for free, basically. Mm-hmm. Columbus likes this and he sticks around for a while, but eventually he decides like, I'd really like to actually sail this. Like I'm not, I'm not just happy kicking around here. I actually want to go do this because I actually believe that Japan is just over there. (laughs) Right around the corner. Go to Japan for a gallon of milk. 1492, Reconquista uh, wraps up finally and he goes, this is my time. So he goes and proposes it again. Isabella says no. Uh, actually at the at the advice of her confessor like she'd have like a personal priest who advises mm-hmm. her kind of thing uh she says no but ferdinand like as he's like riding as as columbus is like riding out of town on a on a mule basically goes like wait hang on maybe we can make something work here uh they put together three ships for him and they go okay fine sail across the ocean and see what you can find if you find something sure we'll call you grand admiral of the ocean whatever that's I mean, honestly, they're thinking here, like, if he finds something, great. It's Spain's territory. That's fantastic for us. We're on a roll anyway. Let's keep it going. If he dies out there, problem solved. Lost three boats. <laughs> Just three ships. So they offer him all of these things that he's that he's asking for: the the, the governorships, the one tenth of all profits, um, the title of Great Admiral of the Ocean. <laughs> Plus, they offer him. Uh, well, I mean, he he was asking for more too, but they also offer him the option to buy a one eighth share in any business that uh, is involved uh, crossing the ocean. He doesn't have to, but he's he's allowed to yeah. if he you know he has the right option of first to. refusal. Yeah, exactly. Um, any government position, he's allowed to propose three people for the position that the that the uh, monarchs can pick one of the three to put in place. And they offer a lifetime pension to anybody who first spots land on this voyage. So they set up three ships, and it cannot be stressed how tiny these ships actually are. <laughs> They're very, very, very small. And well, they were the right size for the the voyage he was well, and proposing, that's the thing, right? right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, they've they've got a few weeks of of food uh, stored on these ships, and. It's I'd not, like to know what the bankroll is. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly $80, don't know. $80, all right, bye. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, August 3rd, 1492, Columbus sets sail with these three ships. They have about five weeks of food, and about five weeks later, uh, on October 12th, um, a lookout named Rodrigo de Triana shouts to the rest of the crew that he spotted land, and he wakes everybody up, and they you know, fire cannons to wake everybody up to let them know that this is all going on. And he's psyched because he's going to get this pension. And Columbus comes up on the on the deck of the boat. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, I actually saw that yesterday. I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Scumbag. Anecdote. <laughs> just to put a cherry on top. And he claims the pension for himself. <laughs> Why? He's already this. 
He's already being a tenth of everything. Here's, here's the thing about Columbus, and, and this is the reason that I always get so frustrated with this guy whenever he comes up. This, by the time we're done this story, you're going to forget that this even happened. This is going to seem like he accidentally like jostled somebody on the subway one time compared to the stuff that we're going to talk about. So basically, he's found the Bahamas. It's, a, it's an island somewhere in the Bahamas. We're actually not sure which one. He names it San Salvador. There is actually now a San Salvador in the Bahamas. It was named in 1925 based on like which island they think Columbus landed on. So I know there is an island with that name. It's not necessarily 100% the same island that, that uh, Christopher Columbus landed on. There is so, a San Salvador, but it might be apocryphal. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, this island that he finds uh, is populated by Lucayan, Taino, and Arawak people. And they are incredibly friendly people, and they're very, very peaceful people. And they come out to like greet the boats when they when they sail up or when they they row up from the ships, and they're they're giving these people food and fresh water, and they're extremely friendly to, despite not being able to speak the same languages, but um, incredibly welcoming from all accounts. And columbus goes oh these are indians i can feel like the anger oh, welling up in I my know. chest we're, we're not even started like, i, I know but people, like, i wonder why <laughs> we're not even started um i know what's coming <laughs> he, he believed he was in india and i, I i'm 95 percent sure that this is because of the skin color of the people that he ran into he thinks he missed japan and hit india he makes notes in his journal that day uh about these people that he's met and some of the things that he says, uh, not only that they're not only calling them Indians, but some of the other things he says are that he noted some of them had gold earrings. And so he took a bunch of them captive, demanding that they show him where they got the gold because he wants the gold. So cool start with these relations. Yeah. He, Just right off the bat. He believed that their friendly nature would make them very good servants. He noted that they would do basically whatever he asked them to do. Uh, and that would make them extremely well suited to slavery. He believed that they had no religion. He'd been there one day. He believed that they had no religion, which would make them uh, extremely easy to convert to Christianity. So, A+. Plus. Um, and he noted that they were militarily primitive and therefore could be easily conquered. He believed he could take the entire island with maybe 50 men and a couple of modern cannons. So, this was a good thing. He noted that a bunch of them had scars. He believed that they were from a, a neighboring tribe that would uh, uh, basically sail across from uh, from South America to take slaves. And he thought that that would actually uh, help their nature as uh, docile servants because they were used to being taken captive. This is, a, this is after one day of knowing these people. There is no common language. There is nothing to indicate any of this stuff. Dear diary, I can't wait to subjugate these people. I've already subjugated several. <laughs> It was so easy. I can't wait to do it again. I can't wait to try more. <laughs> 50 men. We can subjugate them all. This this is this should set the tone for the rest of our topic. He took a bunch captive. He decided that he was going to bring them back to Europe with him just to show them off. It's like a cool traveling exhibit of some sort. Uh he wanted to sell them for a lot of money as slaves as being extremely exotic. So he sails off from San Salvador. Spends some time on Cuba, uh, exploring there. Again, the people he finds are very peaceful. Uh, he actually managed to run his flagship aground on Hispanola. Hispanola is the island that Haiti and the Dominican Republic are on. Uh, ran it aground on Christmas Day. Establishes a colony there of 39 men. Calls it Navidad, after the, the nativity. 
because it was Christmas Day that he crashed the ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a sign, surely. Um, this colony included the uh, the one translator that he brought with him, who spoke uh, Arabic uh, and Hebrew. Because sure, that might come in useful, I guess. Yeah. I mean, languages people in India might know, <laughs> right? Question mark. I, I mean, there, there's there's a there's a, the smallest bit of of rationale there being that this person is good at picking up languages, but it's it's not as though he actually thought these people were speaking Arabic. It's not that. It's just that like it's a token gesture signifying nothing. Basically, yeah. It, it seems it seems kind of kind of useless, and so he after establishing this this colony he. Uh, he, he leaves again. During all of this explana- exploration, he discovers only one hostile tribe, the uh, Kiguayos. And the reason that they're hostile is because Columbus wanted to trade with them. They refused his deal, and Columbus became angry and attacked them. And so they fought back. Those savages. So unreasonable. <laughs> yeah. Um, it took a bunch more prisoners after the fighting, brought them with when he left, decided to go straight back to Spain to report his findings. Uh, most of the prisoners died on the voyages. Yeah, oops, I guess. Like, the, 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 the callousness with which he's treating these people is, is just so abhorrent. Staggering. Um, he returns to Spain, uh, 15th of March, 1493, announces to the court and by proxy the known world uh, that this new place exists kicks down the door as a new grand admiral. <laughs> now keep in mind sorry great admiral great admiral uh doesn't believe that he's found a new world <laughs> believes that he's found a new route to the far east does he has he realized this isn't india yet nope so he's still under the impression that oh this is just what the east coast of india looks like yep cool he believes he's hit islands off the coast of India. So he both knows that he has to trade with the Indians, but is also like just cool with kidnapping them as well. Yep. Okay, Rad. Mm-hmm. Just making sure. That's the interesting thing about all of this. He's talking about how much he wants to convert these people and how much he wants to establish trade with these people, but also he wants to attack them and find the source of their gold and take them hostage and make slaves out of them. So good business plan. Not sure how that's going to work. Okay, no lost those. Yeah, it's some art of the deal there. <laughs> Uh, obviously a second voyage is set up, uh, right away. Um, I, I'm literally just like, I know, I knew this was going to be bad. Laughing to stop from crying. I knew this was going to be bad, but like we, as you said, we're just getting started and you know, when, when I talk about wanting to avoid Columbus yeah. and get all worked up about it, it's as much for you guys as it is for <laughs> me. Cause I already know all this stuff. Yeah. I have to sit here and tell you guys now. You had to watch me go through Ireland and now you're gonna i was just thinking about that i'm like phil had to sit through the ireland one and he's Irish. <laughs> i yeah. watched I, i've put a lot of people through a lot of things and uh, yeah i just i just knew how this one was gonna go oh well thanks for signing me up for this <laughs> you agreed man you agreed. i know uh second voyage much bigger obviously because now we know that we can make it it's not just kind of flood of fancy let, let's see if people will die so did he actually get the great admiral title like mm-hmm. is this the thing people this are calling him now know. this yeah. is the arc that i'm following yeah he's, yeah. The, he's, he's now the great admiral of the ocean he he filled his part of the contract oh, they fill theirs so did he renegotiate when he got back no 
he was happy with the deal already and just wanted to go explore more. As far as he what knows, what more could he ask for? <laughs> as far as he knows, he's found this place. That's, that's true. Full I guess of he, gold. He doesn't know that there's actually a lot more that he's about to find. No, no, he has no idea. Um, so he he's found this place that's full of gold, as far as he can tell. As far as he can tell, it's a massive source of slaves, which he's planning on selling at a massive price. He's looking for those sweet profits. Also, he's got a lifetime pension because he saw the land first, right? Wink. Uh, I, I saw it first, guys. That poor guy. <laughs> we don't even know his name. That's some like. No, we do know his name. Know I, told his you, name. Yeah. I told you his name. That's even worse almost. History forgot this. <laughs> this is some like third grade <laughs> shit where someone, you know, was like, oh, I called dibs on that yesterday. Yeah. yeah. It's like no. a child. It's like a child. It's the worst. Um it's no, it's it's awful. Um Okay, so he he returns with twelve hundred men. And this voyage, it's seventeen ships this time. It includes farmers, it includes priests, it includes soldiers. The the, the intent is to create a permanent or semi-permanent settlement from which to launch uh both uh, religious missions and trade missions. So he wants to establish a base of operations in uh, the, the Caribbean, uh, even though he's not necessarily aware of this. Now, there is one thing that he's doing quite competently when it comes to sailing, which is taking advantage of what the Portuguese called the turn of the sea. Um, when you're sailing from or between Europe and the Americas, the best way to do it is to sail from Europe south to the canary islands because there's a uh, a trade wind that sails uh, or that, that blows generally south uh to that point then there's another trade wind that picks up along the equator from the canary islands to the caribbean that's the one that he took to uh, get there the first time then if you go slightly north of the caribbean there's another trade wind that takes you from like the bottom of florida kind of thing northeast uh, back to Europe itself, kind of lands like off the coast of uh, Portugal, uh, like in the Azores kind of thing. So he was very uh, deftly navigating that. So as far as the competence of at least his crew is concerned, that was going quite well, actually. And there was kind of a leap of faith that's involved there because he knew that there were trade winds that were coming from the west to the Azores, and he knew that there was the wind going from the Canary Islands to the east. But knowing that the wind going from uh, Florida or so to the Azores was actually going all the way there, uh, that was a little bit risky because there was, well, yeah, an educated guess more like, but still, uh, it could have gone badly for him. He could have ended up in Greenland and not knowing what to do with himself. Uh So there is that going. Back to this this uh, uh, mission that, that that they're setting up, though. They found a colony, um, or sorry, they, they go back to the colony on Hispanola that they left there, Navidad, and they discover that the entire thing has been destroyed by the Taino. Or the, the Taino, sorry. Um, they found uh, a new colony about 100 kilometers to the east on the coast. It looks like something broke bad between those 39 men and the locals, and they were killed. Uh, we don't really know what, but... Columbus took it very personally. He uh, it probably was personal, <laughs> to I be mean, honest. Yeah, if you had to guess. That's entirely possible, honestly. So far, the behavior of Columbus and his crew has not proven to be entirely friendly with these people. So, uh, if if I had to hazard a guess, the the balance of probability, they probably started this. Yeah. So they they found a new colony uh, a ways down, and 
like the relations between the the, the native people on Hispanola are bad from the get go. Like it's 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 just these people are not um, really interested in hosp- uh, 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 hostility towards the Spanish in any way, shape, or form, and the Spanish are so bent on making it happen in some way. Uh, that they just have no choice but to end up in in constant conflict. The crews that Columbus picked in general were not the savory types. The colonists that went for the most part seemed like okay people. They were just kind of very adventurous Spanish. Um, You know, in the case of the clergy, they're looking for an opportunity to, you know, perform missions that they've never, like no one has ever had like this this much potential for religious conversion before there's like a real uh, religious zeal there's a bit of a purity to it almost when it comes to columbus's crew they are there to exploit everything that they possibly can and the clashes between the crew and the rest of the colonists starts up very early columbus himself had some measure of control over his crew like he could kind of keep them in line but uh, a couple years into the the voyage 1495 Columbus got very, very ill. He was bedridden for some time. And Columbus was actually a a pretty ill man ever since his first voyage. Um, He would get these bouts of sickness that would leave him bedridden for days, um, sometimes weeks. But the 1495 one was particularly bad. Um, According to accounts from the other uh, uh, settlers, the the men uh, went wild. That's the, the quote. And in the process, killed as many as 50,000 natives uh, over the smallest things, uh, sometimes over nothing. Um, They would ask them for directions to gold when they were unable to comply. They would take them captive. They would use captives for uh, sword practice. They would see if they could cut someone in half with one stroke. I wish you could see the faces Miller and I are making. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. There are, like, there are, sorry, I'm having a hard time spitting this out. Yeah, we understand. There are accounts of rape of Native women by crew members that they're writing about themselves in their own journals, that their own accounts of what's happening is so horrific that I I can hardly believe anyone put to, to, to paper. And this is just them talking about what they themselves have done. It's, it's absolutely uh, horrific. Keep in mind, these are people that three years before, upon seeing Europeans for the first time, welcomed them with open arms and and free provisions because they could tell that they were suffering. Um, This is not uh, a clash of of hostile forces. This is a very deliberate and intentional subjugation of of a a native population that is, is very, very easily going to meet the definition of genocide very soon. When Columbus recovered, uh, instead of um, necessarily taking control of his men and and disciplining them for what they've done, he uh, decided to take it out on the natives and organize much more, uh, um, you know, organized platoons of of, uh, soldiers to go out and uh, and quell the restless natives uh, using uh, attack dogs in the process, things like that. It 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 was absolutely horrific. It's estimated that before Columbus arrived on Hispanola, uh, there were about 250,000 uh, to 300,000 native people. Within the first two years of Columbus's governorship, uh, half that. Jesus. It was so bad for these populations that there were mass suicides and infanticides among the native populations. 
because that seemed like a better option than dealing with Columbus's men. On top of this, there's the disease. And we've talked about this at length in other subjects. And this in isolation is not something that you could blame the Europeans for. They do not understand the idea of uh, um, natural immunity. Uh, these people have not been through the immunological events that Europeans have been through. Um, I remember reading one account, I think it was in a book called 1491, which was uh, about uh, the Americas pre-European uh, contact. And to, to paraphrase, basically an expert was asked, is there any way that Colombian contact could not have resulted in the death of like 90% of the native population. And basically the person said like, unless this happens after the advent, uh, the, the advent of vaccination and like the, the express ex understanding of vaccination, mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't, that's just, it, it doesn't, there's, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's a hand of, of cards that's dealt there that, you know, it, it just doesn't work out. However, that being said, while the disease aspect of it is horrific and out of the European control, it compounds everything else that these men are doing to such a great extent that um, it, 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 it's all happening to them at once. This, 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 this genocide is all happening to them at once, and the disease just makes it that much worse. If you're looking for a refresher on this, by the way, um, CGP Grey has a wonderful video wonderful in that it's educational mm -hmm. not wonderful because of the topic uh called america pox the the missing plague mm -hmm. and uh it goes over a bunch of the science and just how brutal this really was yeah there's 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 an element of desperation to talking about this stuff and that there's really nothing there that, that could have happened um the technology needed for vaccination versus the technology needed to reach that continent it really only happens in the order that it happens. It's just kind of how it goes. But again, that's that's not my beef with with Columbus. It's really, really not. Yeah, it's he was a... he was already up to some pretty horrific things mm -hmm. before you add in the disease aspect. Yeah, disgusting icing on a terrible cake. Mm -hmm. Um, this treatment of the native population is not going unnoticed by the Spaniards that are settling there. And there's a mass revolt against Columbus as governor of Hispanola. Um, really? To the point that he is returned to Spain uh, in chains in 1500. Oh. He's, he's arrested for, basically for brutality. Stripped of his title. He is. Yes. He absolutely is. He's, he's <laughs> some, some modicum of justice. Yay, the arc comes to a close. <laughs> You know what? I'm I'm jumping ahead. He actually that that's after the third voyage. We oh, were still yeah. on the second Sorry. voyage. Well, the, second, the second voyage is over, and and I don't have a lot more to say about the third voyage other than it included some cursory exploration of the north coast of South America. So we finally realized like there's a continent there. Um, he's still not entirely like he doesn't realize that it's a new continent yet. He still thinks he's somewhere in Asia. But like at this point, he's just getting deeper into the slave trade. He's discouraging the baptism of natives because he believes it makes them harder to sell as slaves. People don't want Christian slaves, despite that originally being one of his reasons for wanting this contact and wanting these uh, these settlements. He's sending t like hundreds of Taino slaves back to Europe, mostly dying on the voyage. He realizes that all of this death is a problem for his bottom line. Uh, and decides that instead of trying to sell them back to Africa or to to, uh, to Europe, what he's going to do is he sets a quota of gold dust for these natives. It's, it, it's described as one hawk's bell every three months. It's just like a little bit of 
uh, uh, gold. And if you meet that quota, you get like a copper disc that you can wear around your neck and you're fine. If you don't meet your quota, um, you publicly have your hands amputated and you're left to bleed to death. Dear Lord, why? So they now have to pay him to not be slaves. Correct. Or die. Yep. Um, anyone that he defeats in battle among these, uh, yeah, and I'm using the term battle very loosely. Anyone he massacres among these uh, these populations, anyone who's not killed is um, publicly tortured, uh, paraded through the streets as an example. Uh, these these uh, colonists who are like getting all uppity with him, anyone who's crossing him are also being tortured in the streets. Um, it's it's this this insane level of tyranny, and there are there, there have been historians in the past that have argued like oh he's a product of these times like okay yeah like <laughs> europe sucked at that point not as bad as this no it seems like he was just like hey i've got some power and these people can be subjugated so i guess i'm the king here now um it's so bad that when when he's arrested on these these charges they get um testimony from his crew members like his friends as well as his enemies and like even his crew members are like yeah there does seem to be a lot of maiming going on like it's not the people who would be defensive of all of this are giving just as as terrible testimonies as anyone who's against him. He's he's taken back to Spain in 1500. Um, he spends some time in jail. He's eventually freed, but he's stripped of the title as governor. They give him the opportunity to sail back on a fourth voyage, but he's never going to get any sort of political power again. 1502, he sails again. This is mostly notable because he explores the coast of Central America. Um, he's looking for a way through. He feels like there's... He, he's finally feeling like this is an unknown landmass, but he feels like if he can get through Central America, he'll be in the Indian Ocean. So he's still, like, really far off. Still doesn't necessarily understand that this is a new continent. Did they have any concept of, like, Indonesia... Uh, that would be, they would have called that the Spice Islands, and that's just a vague term for all of the oceanic island chains. Okay. They don't know specifically, like, so they haven't, like, mapped them out specifically. So he assumes that he's, like, thereabouts. Yeah. Kinda. And is trying to find where the edges of the islands are, and it's not an island. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, the, I mean, the thing that, that really tips it off on the third and fourth voyages about the, the continent is the amount of fresh water flowing into the into the uh the ocean that's a really telltale sign of like a yeah. huge mass land mass yeah during this entire voyage uh he's obstructed the entire way by the other spanish uh um colonists who absolutely detest him there's a new governor they don't really help him out with supplies they don't really provide any sort of military support when he gets himself into trouble uh they kind of actively work against him honestly he is absolutely despised by these people because they spent several years under him and they hated it. It was awful. Um, the, the other notable thing about this voyage is that he used the prediction of a uh, lunar eclipse, which, you know, he, he'd have a book. Uh, uh, almanac. Yeah, basically it's an almanac uh, predicting when he was, these would happen. He was actually uh, stranded and these uh, th this tribe wouldn't give him any uh, help, him and his crew any help. And he used his prediction of this uh, lunar oh, eclipse Lord. to basically uh, claim to have divine knowledge. And when he, a wizard. Yeah, when he, you know, uh, uh, impressed them with this, uh, they changed their tune and gave him the supplies he needed to continue on on his voyage. Um, yeah. What a cool guy. Christopher Columbus. His later years characterized by an increased religiousness. He became 
obsessed with religion uh but also like extremely bitter towards the spanish crown he believed he was really unfairly treated by his trial in 1500 he actually wrote an entire book called the book of privileges outlining all the ways he felt he'd been wronged um the main complaint (laughs) the irony i know Mm -hmm. (laughs) his main complaint was that when he was removed as governor they stopped paying him the 10 percent of all profits from the uh transoceanic trade and he believed that that was a separate arrangement from the governorship and because just because he lost his title as governor doesn't mean he should have lost those profits the crown disagreed there would be legal battles fought for a couple centuries trying to work all this stuff out between his heirs and the crown Hmm. uh never really went that well for them put that out there darn yeah too bad for them eh? you know he was I said something about this earlier, but he was never really a well man after the first voyage. We're not entirely sure what he had. It was originally believed that he had gout because he occasionally had gout-like symptoms, but it seemed to be something bigger going on. It could be influenza. The main theory right now is that it's something called reactive arthritis. It's uh, a form of arthritis that comes about um, uh, due to usually a bacterial infection of some sort, and it leaves you in intense pain and a bunch of other... Uh, really terrible symptoms um sometimes from malnutrition which is entirely possible on a transatlantic vo- uh, transatlantic voyage sometimes from se- sexually transmitted infections which also possible, possible. <laughs> um it's it's hard to say uh we we don't know for sure um but uh yeah like i mean the guy would go through weeks where he had like horrible fevers bleeding from his eyes like all this like awful stuff and uh eventually he died in 1506 at the age of 54 which is not terribly old really um what was the life expectancy around then life expectancy is one of those tricky things where depends are you are you a noble are you well not not just that but like are you two or are you 30 because your chances of making it to five are pretty slim but once you make it to adulthood Mm -hmm. you've got a pretty good shot at 60 or 70 okay um it's it's just that a lot of the stuff that's going to kill you comes up by the time you're 20 25 kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but yeah if you if you make it older than that you're usually going to do okay yeah so that's that's who columbus was um yeah. let's name a holiday after him well i mean let's let's get into it a little bit so he he was celebrated by the early u.s because the the english had always pushed um john cabot as somebody to be celebrated as like the, the founder of north america kind of thing because he was an english expo- well he was also italian but he was working for the english crown uh-huh. giovanni cavalto yeah, i was gonna say um, uh, uh, not english no no no, no not <laughs> asterisk all. but like uh, sailing under a, a, an english uh letter of um intent yeah uh so when the revolution comes about it's kind of like well hey let's maybe not celebrate a an englishman for the founding of our colonies so they they looked elsewhere and and um uh columbus was one option washington irving that's who wrote the biography um couldn't remember that name before mm-hmm. wrote this biography in 1828 that's like really skewed has absolutely nothing to do with what abs- what actually happened and paints uh columbus as this very like noble brave pious man who's a fiction writer <laughs> yes again wrote sleepy hollow um so you know <laughs> grain of salt uh or a whole shaker entire shaker a big is old pile of salt in the mid-19th century 
there's a bit of a Columbus Renaissance because um, the Italian American population is really growing at this point in time. And in the 1860s or so, being Italian American is the same level of like otherness as you'll see with um, groups today in, in the United States. Um, you are American or you're Italian American and mm -hmm. Italian American is a completely separate thing. And yeah, the, man, the, the racism was very granular at that point in time. Um, what the Italian American population wanted to do was basically go like, listen, there's been Italians in America as long as there's been America. Uh, Columbus is, is proof of that. This was founded by an Italian. It was like an Italian pride kind of thing, but also like a, an Italians are American sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, again, very divorced from what actually happened in all of this, right? Uh, because people didn't necessarily know all of the stuff that we're talking about here. No, yeah. It's very willfully ignored. I mean, keep in mind that the 19th century is also an era in North America where um, violence towards indigenous populations was... Um, not only ignored but like willfully suppressed in a lot of cases and so any of this information would just be intentionally left out of any of uh, any uh, historical evaluation of these people then you also get uh in the 1880s the the founding of the knights of columbus which is a catholic fraternity they use columbus as a as a symbol again not really understanding all of the terrible things that go along with it of a very well-respected Catholic man. Um, obviously, that is not necessarily aged that well. But there's a uh, there's a massive push in the 1930s, especially because again, in, in the United States, for a long time, Catholics are considered very other because mm -hmm. there's this concern about sort of devotion to the papacy, which is a foreign power, and you know, can you really be an American if you're also taking orders from the Pope? Which isn't really how that works, but. The perception of that in the general public is very strong and very real. What would have been the presiding American religion at the time? Um, given, given the wanting to divorce yourself from everything like Anglican as well. Yeah, it's it's uh, the um, like a Puritanism uh, is, oh, okay. is kind of the yeah. most common. But you also have the uh, um, as you get further on into the 19th century, you get sort of the rise of, of like Pentecostal, like Bible first sort of. Um, Revivalist groups, yeah, mm -hmm. American uh, uh, evangelism. Yep. I can, can never evangelism. Yeah. Evangelism. Yeah. So, so evangelism. Like the <laughs> that's where I was trying to not go. That's, Thanks. That's where I always go. That, that's different. Um, <laughs> so, like, you know, Baptist and things like that start becoming very, very prevalent. Um, uh, so, so yeah. I mean, because people are so concerned about like this individualist uh, um, form of of Christianity being sort of more patriotic than this supposed uh um foreign version of of catholicism mm -hmm. catholics are seen as very uh iffy i mean this this well, yeah, continues because it's until, either italian or irish right <laughs> but, but it's it's not just that it's also this this um uh required devotion to the pope i mean this is going to be a problem up mm -hmm. until uh the 1960 election where jfk being a, a catholic is questioned for his fitness as president because of his Catholicism, it's worried that the president of the United States can be uh, um, uh, influenced by a foreign power because of this religious devotion. Yeah, what a difference a few decades makes, huh? It, that's not even to say it's gone now. Like, there's still no. a huge yeah. rivalry in America yeah, about non-Catholic and Catholic. Yeah, it's it's not it's not the the way it was, but it's it's certainly there. Yeah. Um, I mean, keep in mind that like. <laughs> 
we're we're getting very off track, but hey, welcome welcome <laughs> to HI 101, everybody, and also welcome to the Columbus episode. <laughs> um, you know, the, let's the, talk about something else, please. <laughs> the, the KKK would list Catholics in the same list of enemies as all their other enemies. Like mm-hmm. it's it's considered very anti-American. So in 1934, um, the the Knights of Columbus successfully lobby uh, for Columbus Day as a federal holiday as a celebration of a very important and influential Catholic man. Again, along the same lines as uh, with Italian Americans trying to show like, listen, Americans always been ca- America's always been Catholic. It was founded by a Catholic, basically. Since, since then, you know, we, we're, we're all very familiar with sort of the pushback against uh, Columbus Day, especially recently. I just had a, a quick thing I wanted to jump in on. Mm-hmm. Columbus never hit North America, did he? Central America was as far north as he ever went. So where did this misconception about his involvement in North America come from? Is it is it do is there was there actually a belief that he hit North America or was it just that well he hit the Americas which led to North America more or did they just attribute everything John Cabot did <laughs> uh, no no more the the uh, he found the Americas and therefore that's basically America which is about like, in line with American values at the time to be perfectly honest with you um, it's but but yeah I mean it's it's even up in the air if if Columbus died thinking he. Uh, found a new continent versus Asia. Uh, some people say yes. A lot of people say no. I mean, America is named after, or, or probably named after, uh, another explorer, Amerigo Vespucci, um, not after Columbus. There's this push in the 19th century to name certain things after Columbus, right? Uh, District of Columbia. Um, like, there's all these like very uh, Colombian motifs in in uh, uh, American iconography basically does the name of the country colombia come from yes that as well yep yeah it absolutely does but um yeah i I mean for him to be considered the you know a founder of the united states specifically is a massive stretch like it's it's it makes no sense whatsoever historically speaking at least and you know the the more recent pushback against uh columbus day is is i think incredibly warranted because Wow, this does not seem like the kind of guy we should be celebrating necessarily, huh, guys? Maybe not. Maybe not. Probably not. What with all Definitely the not. stuff? Absolutely not. Let's not. Could Absolutely we not? not. But will America ever push back against the Catholic lobbyists? <laughs> <laughs> um, by about sixty years after Columbus found uh, Hispaniola, there were only about five hundred Taino left on the island. Sorry, how many years was this? About sixty. Uh, Generations just gone. An entire people. It's it's genocide. There's no if yeah. brought up about it. Like it's not it's not up for debate. Um, how you know people quibble over how much of it is you know direct violence or slavery versus uh, disease. disease. I don't have a lot of time for that argument personally. <laughs> uh, it it seems pointless to me. Yeah, it, it seems like so, a distinction that you don't need to make. <laughs> if it weren't one, it would have been the other. Yep. Well, yeah. Essentially, that's. That's true. We're talking about amount of time versus uh, end result. Yeah. So that's Christopher Columbus. Aren't you guys happy that we finally talked about it? So, so Miller, I haven't listened to all the episodes you've been on. Is this your first one like this? Um, I tend to wards topics that are more progressive, <laughs> like the, that that are like you know, well, we started here and then we ended up here, and aren't we better off? <laughs> you know, generally, even those have some surprises. Of but... course, yeah. I mean, the space race had you know the 
Project Paperclip, I think it was called. Operation it, Paperclip, yeah. Which had some, you know, things we had to kind of, hey, okay, but let's move on to the rest of the topic after that. You mm-hmm. know, there was the whole Tops of the Elephant thing in the very first one, which was a, a rough one. It's not genocide. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I guess I'd say this is my first. Uh, so you've also listened to some of the heavier episodes. Yes. How does it, I, I, I'm curious, what is it like being in the seat versus listening to it? I don't know how to react. Yeah, it's hard. It's like, I... I, I it hurts. Never... I'm sitting here making faces of pain at yeah. Adam as he stares at me and tells me this horrible shit. <laughs> and Adam's just like doing this. He's like, I got to keep going. But like, I recognize the look on your face, but we're going to keep going, well, right? Credit to Adam for drama- dramatically pausing at all the correct moments. I think he had to. <laughs> to, leave, <laughs> to leave Phil and I to just gape. <laughs> like, yeah. There's going to be like, I don't know if he's going to edit it down, but there's like one moment where I think we have like three or four seconds of just dead air. Yeah. You <laughs> know, there's nothing to say. The, there's nothing no, to say. What can be said? The, the thing about editing a show like this is knowing when to leave that silence. And honestly, yeah. guys, like it's, it's um, I don't know, like this is, this is kind of the sort of thing that we were talking about a little bit in the first half in terms of like, hey, who are your historical heroes like you know obviously most people are not as bad as as columbus but like what you get in the form of columbus day and the pushback against abolishing columbus day is like why are we making this guy a hero because we decided at one point he would make a good symbolic um it was political yeah it was political absolutely and And it's and it's it's all and it's even hard to blame (laughs) and it's even hard to blame the groups that are necessarily pushing for him as this positive symbol yeah because they're not necessarily change and then who's going to be a hero next week well they're they're not necessarily aware of all of this stuff when they're looking to put him forward as a positive Mm -hmm. symbol of whatever group but like now that we know this stuff and now that this stuff is like commonly known and understood it's kind of weird to hang on to it despite knowing all of this stuff that's kind of where i land on a lot of this where it's like but we know it now. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we? Why are we so desperate to hang on to that? You can't unknow it. To make it a national holiday is is you know, it's not a company firing someone for something that he tweeted ten years ago. It's this is a national holiday. Yeah, <laughs> this is something that your country is mandating. Mm-hmm. It should be taken fairly seriously. Yeah, and arguments about it being you know, well, this is changing changing history, or this is denying who we are. Blah blah blah. Past is the past. Who cares? Like, and, and none of that flies for me, honestly. Yeah, um, we don't. Let's not celebrate genocide y'all yeah it's it's almost the opposite of that right because like by no time for that argument by looking well we're gonna make a bit of time for sure sure no (laughs) but i i I absolutely take your point by looking at the past now that we know more about what happened Mm -hmm. and choosing to no longer idolize this man Mm -hmm. i think that says a lot more about who you as a country are i i agree it's um, it's not any it's not erasing your past it's recognizing it and owning up for it yeah yeah and and way more admirable th- there's there's something you know at, at at the risk of making some people a little upset with me there's there's something a little bit juvenile about hanging on to symbols uh blindly and without any uh critical examination of why they're symbols um for the sake of uh you know a, a national myth i mean National stories are important um, to social cohesion, yes, um, but that doesn't mean that we need to blindly follow them in ways that can be harmful to um, everyone, yeah. everyone in, in multiple, multiple ways. Well, it becomes a matter of like corporate culture too, but like it's widely held as belief that 
this is the way we've always done it isn't a good enough reason to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, correct. Yeah. So now we're all mad. <laughs> I'm gonna go punch some stuff or something. Like I'm not a particularly violent person, but I could go hit something. Let's go punch each other. <laughs> it's uh, a one on one fight club. My spin off podcast. That's, that's <laughs> no. That is not hard featuring me. That's that's you guys can go do what you want, I guess. Hard note. I got a bone to pick with Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. I, I I don't know. This is why you know every time he comes up i just push it aside because like I, this is this is i, I don't want to get like this yeah, when you don't want to go off on a rant for 10 minutes yeah 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 it's just there's so much to say about columbus do you guys have that like almost like disgust and anger still in your chest from from thinking about all this like i can't let go of it it's hard to sit still it is it's like it's it's like, physically uncomfortable <laughs> yeah yeah i i don't know that we're gonna find a, a natural uh <laughs> all to this uh, yeah we could probably just complain the conversation forever do you have a letter note to end us on i absolutely don't um, <laughs> i was really hopeful there for a second like you, you really got me all right no i mean i mean there's like i said there's there's efforts to get rid of the day there's efforts to celebrate other things on that day which i think are very admirable but yeah for every you know state who's deciding not to celebrate columbus day there's uh literally two more that are that are hanging on to it so i mean not not a lot to say there other than listen don't don't maybe think a lot before you have historical heroes oh. maybe really 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 consider it and maybe if somebody says something about someone you idolize that doesn't sound great instead of attacking the person who's saying that thing maybe take a little bit of a look at it yourself because it could turn out that they're not necessarily who you thought they were you yeah. didn't know this person they are a, they are a symbol as much as they are uh, a real human being and real human beings rarely stack up to symbols yeah educate yourself educate the next generation and uh hopefully we can do better so everyone you wanted columbus that's columbus <laughs> thanks sorry <laughs> next time next time will be a much more traditional hi101 it happened a long time ago it's a lot less stuff to get personally upset about <laughs> I don't think I can do another one of these in a row. Like my, my previous episode was Ireland. Phil, and then I came back and did this. <laughs> Phil, come on back. We'll do a history of candy. Okay, man. No, <laughs> I don't. I need something light. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. It's always a pleasure. Of course. Likewise. So there you have it. Christopher Columbus. I hope it was as interesting as folks hoped, because I'm almost certain it was less funny than most people expected. He was a cruel, vicious man who, despite errors that should have resulted in the deaths of himself and his own men, happened through sheer luck to find lands unknown to Europeans and visited death on them instead. European contact with the American continents was always going to be difficult for immunological reasons, but what could have been a compassionate effort ex at exchange was a first impression of genocide. If that isn't enough to make you bristle along with me at any mention of the man, I really don't know what could. Next time, we'll be talking about the Thirty Years' War. I'm not positive exactly which day the first part will come out, as my schedule has been a bit off lately with the podcast and with Outside Life, uh, but we'll get both parts into September and be on track by October. 
Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.